Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this very special Signum Symposium event for the winter solstice. My name is Gabriel Schenk. I'm a professor at Signum University, and tonight we are going to be telling ghost stories around the fireplace. Uh, today has been the shortest day of the year. Uh, we are currently in the midst of uh, the longest night, or one of the longest nights of the year. Um, and we're going to be telling ghost stories uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that the winter solstice marks the boundary between two times. So it's the end of the days getting shorter and the beginning of the days getting longer. And boundary times are really important in ghost stories uh, and, and the whole kind of world of ghosts because where you are between two things, the boundary between our world and the spirit world, um, however you want to define that, the world of fairies and elves, of magic, of um, the dead, um, et cetera, et cetera, that boundary is thinnest at times uh, where you are between two things. So the winter sources is a great opportunity for thinking about ghosts and ghost stories um, because uh, the, the other spirits are, are close to us at this time. Uh, and that is doubly the case because it is midnight where I am broadcasting from, it, very close to Oxford in England. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's, it's a very spooky time, midnight, the time in between two days, winter solstice in between two parts of the year. Um, so that's the first reason. The second reason, I think, is just because it's a very long night. It's cold, it's wet, it's dreary, everyone's depressed. Um, and so why not uh, distract ourselves with some ghost stories? Of course, if you're joining us from the Southern Hemisphere, uh, then this is the summer solstice for you, uh, the longest day. But I think ghost stories will be just as appropriate for you because um, ghosts, uh, thinking about ghosts and scary things uh, might send a chill down your spine, which might um, cool you down, um, which will be very useful, especially if you're in one of the hot countries further south. Uh, if, of course, if you are dead set on the equator, then this day won't have particular significance to you. But if you're even slightly north or south of the equator, uh, then it will. So thank you very much, everyone, for joining us live um, on December 22nd, 2019, or um, uh, in the future, whenever you're watching this, if you're watching this on YouTube. Um, and if any spirits and ghosts are listening, you are welcome as well. The uh, actual shortest day was today, and I just thought I'd start with a few pictures from Stonehenge uh, taken this morning, uh, where some crowds um, welcomed in the sunrise uh, of the shortest day, and uh, various druids performed rituals as is their wont. Um, I've done the summer solstice, I haven't done the winter solstice at Stonehenge, but it's a really magical event. Um, just to introduce myself properly, um, my name's Gabriel. Actually, that's all you need to know, really. Uh, I'm a professor at uh, Signum University. Um, so do check out Signum University if you haven't checked them out before. Uh, we're an online educational institute. Um, but I'm joined with uh, the talented novelist and storyteller Ken Bayavraham, uh, whose debut novel, The Flower of the Cedar, is out now in serial podcast form. So do Google The Flower of the Cedar. Um, Kay, are you there? Can you can you say hello? I am indeed. Yes. Hello, everyone. I'm so glad to be here with you all. And I did want to point out that excellent pun, dead set on the equator, left <laughs> completely unnoticed. I just think it needs a moment of silence 
so we can hold it thank in our you <laughs> thank you very much and um I, I mentioned your novel but it i do really kind of uh, encourage people to to seek that out i think anyone who likes um certainly the works of Tolkien, but also the works of people like William Morris and people who inspire Tolkien, or, or just like stories in general, um, will love your work. Um, and you read it out so beautifully. It's, it's rare that you have someone who's talented at the writing, but also talented at the reading. Um, so it's a fantastic package and it's free for everyone, although you can donate um, through the Patreon website if you would like to. So um, we're going to be hearing more from Kay uh, later on tonight. It's really great to have you here and um, uh, great to have everyone here, actually. Uh, I think we should move on, actually, to our very first reading because um, the next speaker is joining us uh, in the UK as well, and where it is just after midnight. Um, so I'm aware that uh, uh, things are... Uh, even though there's many hours before the dawn, um, we, would, we don't want to keep her too late. Um, our first reader is um, Professor Maggie Park, who is um, a lecturer and preceptor at Signum University as well. Um, Maggie, are you are you there? Can you can you say hello? I am indeed. Do you hear a horrible humming? Or are we okay? We're we're fantastic. We're, if we hear a horrible humming, it's either going to be your laptop, or it's going to be angry spirits. Um, but it hopefully they might be too angry. Hunter, I'm just saying. <laughs> so uh, Maggie will be reading out a passage from The Dark is Rising, which is by Susan Cooper. Susan Cooper, um, English author who now lives in America, was taught by C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien at Oxford and her Dark is Rising sequence. If you haven't read them before, uh, do check them out. Um, over to you, Maggie. I'm going to give you a tiny bit of a preamble because I am just jumping straight into a section of The Dark is Rising which is the second of the five book series. So the Darkest Rising sequence, this is all five and one that I use during my master's, so it's full of dog-eared pages and notes and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, the Darkest Rising was written between 1968 and 75. The first book she wrote as a newspaper competition, it was supposed to be a family adventure story. And then she just found these characters sticking with her. She was heavily influenced by Tolkien and Lewis, very influenced by fantasy literature, uh, Beowulf and everything that followed, so kind of created her own mythos around the Arthurian legend. Um, so in this book, in The Dark is Rising, we find Will Stanton, who is the last born of a mythical group of people called the Old Ones. The Old Ones are tasked with protecting the world uh, from the powers of the dark. They are the powers of the light. Will has just discovered on his 11th birthday that he is the last born of the Old Ones, and his role is the sign seeker. So he has been collecting power, powerful objects called uh, signs, and they are circles quartered by a cross, which you can see there, backwards on a camera. <laughs> so he's been collecting those symbols. Each one gives them a little bit more of an edge against the dark. So towards the end of the book, uh, she weaves in a lot of wonderful Celtic mythology uh, and characters. So we're going to dive straight into The Hunt Rides. Come, Merriman said, we must lose no more time. And the white mare wheeled them around away from the river and rose into the air, skimming the foaming water, crossing the Thames to the side that is at the end of Buckinghamshire, beginning of Berkshire. She leapt with desperate speed, yet still Merriman urged her on. Will knew why. He had glimpsed through the flowing folds in Merriman's blue cloak, the great black tornado column of the dark gathered again even larger than before, bridging earth and sky. 
whirling silently in the glow of the burning ship. It was following them and it was moving very fast. A wind came up out of the east and lashed at them. The cloak blew forward around Will, enfolding him as if he and Merriman were shut in a great blue tent. This is the peak of it all, Merriman shouted into his ear, shouting his loudest, but still scarcely to be heard over the rising howl of the wind. You have the six signs, but they are not yet joined. If the dark can take you now, they take all that they need to rise to power. Now they will try hardest of all. On they galloped past houses and shops and unwitting people fighting the floods, past roofs and chimneys over hedges, across fields, through trees, never far from the ground. The great black column pursued them, rushing on the wind and in it and through it rode the black rider on his fire-jawed black horse, spurring after them with the lords of the dark riding at his shoulder like a spinning dark cloud themselves. The white mare rose again and Will looked down. Trees were everywhere below them now, great single spreading oaks and beeches in open fields and then tight growing woods split by long straight avenues. Surely they were galloping down one such avenue now, past brooding snow-weighed fir trees and out again into the open land. Lightning flashed at his left side, leaping in the depths of a huge cloud. In the light, he saw a dark mass of Windsor Castle looming high and close. He thought, if that's the castle, then we must be in the great park. He began to feel, too, that they were no longer alone. Lightning flickered around them and the sky roared. Merriman said beside his ear, do you know Hearn's Oak? Yes, of course, Will said at once. He had known the local legend all his life. Is that where we are? The big oak tree in the great park where he swallowed? How could he have not thought of it? Why had the Book of Grammary taught him everything but this? He went on slowly. Where Hearn the hunter is supposed to ride on the eve of the twelfth night? Then he looked around fearfully at Merriman. Here? I go to gather the hunt, old George had said. Merriman said, of course. Tonight the hunt rides. And because you have played your part well, tonight for the first time in more than a thousand years, the hunt will have a quarry. The white mare slowed, sniffing the air. Winds were breaking the sky apart. A half moon sailed high through the clouds, then vanished again. Lightning danced in six places at once. The clouds roared and growled. The black pillar of the dark came hurtling towards them, then paused, spinning and undulating, hovering between land and sky. Merriman said, an old way rings the great park, the way through Hunter's Comb. They will take a little while to find that, find their way past that path. Will was straining to see ahead through the murk. In the inter intermittent light, he could make out the shape of a solitary oak tree, spreading great arms from its short, tremendous trunk. Unlike most other trees in sight, it bore not the smallest remnant of snow, and a shadow stood beside its trunk the size of a man. The white mare saw the shadow at the same time. She blew hard through her nose and pawed the ground. Will said to himself very softly, the white horse must go to the hunter. Merriman touched him on the shoulder, and with a swift, enchanted ease, they slid down to the ground. The mare bent her head to them, and Will laid his hand on her white neck. Go, my friend, Merriman said, and the horse swung around and trotted eagerly towards the tree and to the mysterious shadow motionless beneath. The creature who owned the shadow was of immense power. Will flinched before the sense of it. The moon went behind the clouds again, and for a while there was no lightning. In the gloom, they could see nothing move beneath the tree. 
One sound came through the darkness, a whinny of greeting from the white mare, as if in counterpoint, a deeper, snuffling whinny came out of the trees beside them. As Will swung round, the moon sailed clear of the cloud again, and he saw the huge silhouette of Pollux, the shire horse from Dawson's farm, with old George high on his back. Will nodded gratefully at him and smiled, but was gazing curiously round the shape, muffled by wrapping that George carried before him. What's that? His neck was tingling, even from just being close to it, whatever it was. Old George did not answer him. He leaned down to Merriman. Is all well? All goes well, Merriman said. He shivered and drew his long cloak around him. Give it to the boy. George looked hard at Will out of his inscrutable, deep-set eyes, and Will, wondering, went towards the cart, heart, cart horse and stood at George's knee, looking up. With a quick, mirthless grin that seemed to mask great strain, the old man lowered the shadowed burden, sorry, lowered the shadow burden towards him. It was half as large as Will himself, though not heavy. It was wrapped in sacking. As he laid hands on it, Will knew instantly what it was. It can't be, he thought incredulously. What would be the point? Thunder rumbled again all around. Merriman's voice said deep in the shadows behind him, but of course it is. The water brought it in safely. Then the old ones took it from the water at the proper time. And now, old George said, from his high place on patient Pollux, you must take it now to the hunter, young old one. Will swallowed nervously. An old one had nothing in the world to fear, nothing. Yet there had been something so strange and awesome about that shadowy figure beneath the giant oak, something that made one feel unnecessary, insignificant, small. He straightened, unnecessary of the wrong word at any rate. He had a task to perform. Raising his burden, raising his, raising his burden like a standard, he pulled away its covering and the bright, eerie carnival mask that was half man, half beast, was given to him by his brother, passed down old one to old one, emerged as smooth and as happy as if it had just arrived from a distant island. The antlers stood up proudly. He saw that they were exactly the shape of those of the golden stag, the figurehead of the dead king's ship. Holding the mask before him, he walked firmly towards the deep shadow of the broad spreading oak. At its edge, he paused. He could see a glimmer of white from the mare, moving gently in recognition. He could see that the mare had a rider, but that was all. The figure on the horse bent down towards him. He did not see the face, but only felt the mask lifted from his hands, and his hands fell back as if they had been relieved of a great weight, even though the head had been from the beginning quite light. He backed away. The moon came sailing suddenly out from behind a cloud, and for a moment his eyes dazzled as he looked full into the cold white light. Then it was gone again. And the white horse was moving out of the shadow, with the figure on its back changed in outline against the dim lit sky. The rider had a head now and was bigger than the head of a man and horned with antlers of a stag. And the white mare bearing this monstrous stag man was moving inexorably towards Will. He stood waiting until the great horse came close. Its nose gently touched his shoulder once for the last time. The figure of the hunter towered over him. The moonlight now glimmered clear on his head and Will found himself gazing up into the strange tawny eyes, yellow gold, unfathomable, like the eyes of some huge bird. He gazed into the hunter's eyes and he heard in the sky that strange high yelping begin again. With the difficulty of escaping an enchantment, he dragged his gaze aside to look properly at the head. 
the great horned mask that he had given the hunter to put on. But it wasn't a mask. The head was real. The golden eyes blinked, feather-fringed and round, with deliberate blink of an owl's strong eyelids. The man's face in which they were set was turned full on will, and the firm carved mouth above the soft beard parted in a quick smile. That mouth troubled Will. It was not the mouth of an old one that could smile in friendship, but there were other lines around it as well. Where Merriman's face was marked with lines of sadness and anger, the hunters told instead of cruelty and a pitiless impulse to revenge. Indeed, he was half beast. The dark branches of Hearn's antlers curved up over Will, the moonlight glinting on their velvety sheen, and the hunter laughed softly. He looked down at Will out of his yellow eyes in the face that was no longer a mask, but living, and he spoke in a voice like a tenor bell. The signs, old one, show me the signs. Without taking his eyes from the towering figure, Will fumbled with his buckle and held the six quartered circles high in the moonlight. The hunter looked at them and bent his head. When he raised it again, slowly, the soft voice was half singing, half chanting words that Will had heard before. So many of you can join me in this. When the dark comes rising, six, I'll turn it back. Three from the circle and three from the track. Wood, bronze, iron, water, fire, stone. Five will return and one go alone. Iron for the birthday, bronze carried long. Wood from the burning, stone out of song. Fire in the candle ring, water from the thaw. Six signs the circle and the grail gone before. But he did not end where Will expected him to. He went on. Fire on the mountain shall find the harp of gold. Played to wake the sleepers, oldest of the old. Power from the green witch lost beneath the sea. And shall find the light at last, silver on the tree. The yellow eyes looked at Will again, but they did not see him now. They had grown cold, abstracted, a chill fire mounting in them that brought the cruel lines back to the face, but Will saw the cruelty now as fierce, as the fierce inevitability of nature. It was not from malice that light and the servants of the light would ever hound the dark, but from the nature of things. Her and the hunter wheeled round on the great white horse away from Will and the single oak tree until his fearsome silhouette was in the open under the moon and the still lowering storm clouds. He raised his head and he made and he made to the sky a call that was like a halloo blown by a huntsman on the horn to call of hounds. The hunting horn of his voice seemed to grow and grow and to fill the sky and come from a thousand throats at once. And Will saw this, it did, from every point of the park, behind every shadow and every cloud, leaping round the ground and through the air, came an endless pack of hounds, sounding, belling as hunting dogs do when they are starting after a scent. They were huge white animals, ghostly in the half-light, loping and jostling and bounding together. They paid not the least attention to the old one or to anything but Hearn on his white horse. Their ears were red, their eyes were red. They were ugly creatures. Will drew back involuntarily as they passed and one great silvery dog broke stride to glance at him with casual a curiosity as if he had fallen a branch. The red eyes and the white head were like flames, and the red ears stood taut upright with dreadful eagerness, so that Will tried not to imagine what it would be like to be hunted by such dogs. Round Hearn and the white mare, they bayed and belled, a heaving sea of red-flecked foam. Then all at once the antler man stiffened, his great horns pointing as a hunting dog points, and he called the hounds together with the rapid, urgent collecting call that sends the pack after blood.
A bedlam of yelping urgency rose from the milling white dogs, filling the sky, and at the same moment, the full strength of the thunderstorm erupted. Clouds split, roaring into that bright, drag jagged lightning as Hearn and the white horse leapt exultantly up into the arena of the sky, with the red-eyed hounds pouring up into the stormy air after them into the great white flood. But then a sudden terrible silence like suffocation came, blotting out all the sound of the storm. In the moment of its last desperate chance, breaking across the barrier that had been holding it at bay, the dark came for Will. Shutting out the sky and earth, the deadly spinning pillar came at him, dreadful in its furious, whirling energy and utter quiet. There was no time for fear. Will stood alone, and the towering black column rushed to engulf him with all the monstrous forces of the dark, arrayed in its writhing mist. And at its center, the great foam-mouthed black stallion reared up with the black rider, his eyes two brilliant points of blue fire. Will called vainly on every spell and defense at his command, yet he knew that his hands were powerless to move the signs for help. He stood where he was, despairing, and closed his eyes. But into the dead, world-muffling silence enwrapping him, one small sound came. It was the same strange, high wickering far up in the sky, like the passing of many migrant geese on an autumn night. And he heard three times that day. Nearer, louder, it grew, opening his eyes, and he saw a scene like nothing he'd ever seen before, no, nor would ever see again. Half the sky was thick and dreadful with the silent raging of the dark and its whirling tornado of power. But now, riding down towards it, out of the west, with the speed of the dropping stones, came Hearn and the wild hunt. At the peak of their power now, in full cry, they came roaring out of the great dark thundercloud, through streaking lightning and gray-purple clouds, riding on the storm. The yellow-eyed antlered man rode, rode laughingly, dreadfully, crying out the avant that rallies hounds at the full chase, and his brilliant white gold horse flung forward with mane and tail flying. And around them and endlessly behind them, like a broad white river, poured the yell hounds, the yelpers, the hounds of doom, their red eyes burning with a thousand warning flames. The sky was white with them. They filled the western horizon, and still they came, unending. At the sound of their bell-like thousand-tongue yelping, the magnificence of the dark flinched and swayed and seemed to tremble. Will caught sight of the black rider once more, high in the dark mist. His face was twisted in fury and dread in frozen malevolence, and behind these awareness of defeat, he spun his horse so fiercely round that the lithe black stallion tottered and almost fell. As he jerked at the rein, the rider seemed to cast something impatiently from his saddle a small dark object that fell limp and loose on the ground and lay there like a discarded cloak. Then the storm and the rushing wild hunt were upon the rider. He rode up the whirling black refuge. The fantastic tornado pillar of the dark curved and twisted, lashed like a snake in agony until finally there was a great shriek in the heavens and it began rushing at furious speed northward. Over the park, over the common and over Hunter's Comb it fled and it went Hearn the hunter in full cry, a long white crest on the surge of the storm. The yelping of the hounds died with distance, fading last of all the sounds of the chase. And above Hearn's oak, the silver half moon was left floating in the sky flecked with small ragged remnants of cloud. Will drew a long breath and looked round. Merriman stood exactly as he had last seen him, tall and straight, hooded, a dark, featureless statue.
Is it over? More or less, Merriman said. The dark is, is it? He dared not bring out the words. The dark is vanquished at last in this encounter. Woo. Fantastic. But I have Thanks. to say, partway through that, it started sleeting here. And I live in Wales, in Snowdonia National Park, where these books take place. It's because of her I live here. Her fault. <laughs> and as I was reading that, it started sleeting against the windows. And the dark uh, rose as well. The dark yeah. literally yeah. rose. Wow, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Maggie. Um, I see someone's got their hand up. Uh, Sandy, I just, um, if you want me to unmute you, I can do. Um, just if you just uh, send a, a message on the chat just to confirm what, what, what your hand up means, because sometimes people put their hand up by accident. Um, but I can unmute you if you want to um, say something over your microphone. Um, and Takako has just written a comment, which is just an exclamation mark, uh, which I think captures it. Takako has been in many of my classes and has heard all of the gushing of Susan Cooper. So I got too excited partway through that. So I was like, slow down. Well, we are going to hear more from Susan Cooper a little bit later on. Um, and I should introduce also the, the other faces you can see, because um, we have Sparrow and, and Elise um, in the room, um, and they will be doing readings a little bit later. Uh, and we're going to hear from one or two other people as well, um, if, uh, if we can, if the spirits allow it, um, and if the dark uh, allows it, uh, or we will fight against the dark and we will force, force it away, uh, if not. So thank you very much, Maggie, for that. Um, I want to turn, well, I was going to say turn from England to, to Wales, but actually, as you say, Maggie, uh, we're, we're already in Wales. So let's stay in Wales and let's actually stay in the, the, the northern part of Wales as well, um, because we're going to um, switch to uh, one of my favourite poets, R.S. Thomas. Um, there's a, a photo of him there, one of the kind of more reasonable and sane photos of him. He was an extraordinary man. Um, and that photo was taken in Anglesey, which is where, I think, where you live, Maggie, isn't it? Uh, have you come across Iris Thomas? Yes, yeah. Um, there's actually quite a few of his poems in the university where he teaches well, Bangor. Oh, of course, Bangor, yeah. 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 I mean, Bangor and I has just moved from Anglesey to near Conway. So I'm, I'm now uh, more in Odonia, but we've still got a spot yeah. in so, so Bangor University is a great, it's the kind of the epicenter, both of R.S. Um, Thomas studies, but also Arthurian literature studies. So it's a, it's a nice kind of meeting point. Um, so I, I wanted to read out a poem by R.S. Thomas. And this poem is called Halloween. And you might be thinking, why on earth is he reading a, a poem called Halloween on the winter solstice? Um, but actually what I was saying about the winter solstice being kind of an in-between point um, between different times and therefore being more appropriate for, um, for ghost stories and for, for bringing spirits from one world to our world um, is also true for Halloween. Uh, Halloween is 31st of October, it's the end of the summer and the beginning of the winter and the nights are starting to um, lengthen at that point. Uh, and uh, this is something that R.S. Thomas talks about. He's, he's wrote, wrote this poem um, to reflect that kind of weaker boundary where um, spirits from the other world might come in. Halloween. Outside, a surfeit of planes. Inside, the hunger of the departed to come back. Ah, erstwhile humans, would you make your mistakes over again? In life, as in love, the second time round is no better. 
I confront their expressions in the embers, on grey walls. Faces among the stones watching me to see if this night, of all nights, I will make sacrifice to the spirits of hearth and of roof tree, pouring a libation. Stay where you are, I implore. This is no world for escaped beings to make their way back into. The well that you took your pails to is polluted. At the center of the mind's labyrinth, the machine howls for the sacrifice of the affections. Vocabulary has on a soft collar, but the tamed words are not to be trusted. As long as the flames hum, making their honey, better to look in upon truth's comb than to take off as we do on fixed wings for depollinated horizons. So in other words, Thomas is saying to any ghosts listening, <clears throat> and I, I reiterate this message to any ghosts listening tonight, uh, thinking of coming from the spirit world to our world, don't bother. It's not that great. Um, you know, it's not going to, if, if you weren't happy the first time, you're not going to be happy the second time. Um, second time around is no better. So, um, you know, I don't want to be unfriendly to ghosts and spirits. Uh, if you want to come through, that's fine. But um, yeah, it might not be worth it. That's all we're saying. So just uh, bear that in mind. Um, and uh, <clears throat> oh, and, and a comment from Carita saying, tuning in late, sorry, but want to say that the fireplace background is A plus, 10 out of 10. Uh, and Penny says, great choice, great poet. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm pleased to, to hear that there's R.S. Thomas appreciation. I've got a little kitten here who's uh, getting in the way. So I'm gonna pull her, this is um, Paloma. Um, yeah, I'd be interested to, to know where you're from, Penny. Um, and because I'm not sure how well known R.S. Thomas is um, outside the UK or even outside Wales. Um, so anyway, that's all I wanted to say for the moment. Um, we are now going to uh, move on to Kay Ben Avraham, um, who will read out a story um, called uh, Fear No Evil on Sorting Hats and Forest Gods by Sarah Gailey. All right. Buckle your seatbelts, everyone. <laughs> this may change the way that you experience Harry Potter and the Lord of the Rings forever afterwards. So, don't be afraid. Step forward and allow your teacher to place the omniscient, trans-dimensional, sapient hat upon your head. Yes, sapient. More than sentient, it is no magic mirror, no crystal ball, nothing that small or simple. It does not predict. It knows. It has been at work longer than your bloodline has been in the world and it has forgotten none of what it has learned in that time. It is more powerful than you can begin to comprehend, so do not try. It commands the aid of the phoenix, and it understands the weaknesses of the basilisk. It can teleport ancient artifacts of unspeakable power based solely on the loyalty it reads in your heart. You don't yet know what loyalty is in your heart. The hat 
does not require your input. The hat knows. It knows who you are and what you want. No, not that thing you think you want. It knows what you really want. It knows what you're going to want tomorrow, next week, 20 years from now. It knows what you'll regret on your deathbed. Trust it to choose your fate. Trust it to choose your friends. It sees the seeds of identity in you and in all of your peers. It knows who among you will find courage and brilliance and power and friendship. It knows who you will become and it knows precisely who you are. It knows the future of war and chaos and it knows the deepest evils in the hearts of men. Yes, even yours. Yes, even that, the thing you never told anyone. The hat knows. It knows and it delivers seraphic compassion, perfect objectivity, perfect understanding, perfect judgment and perfect sentencing. It does not care that you think you could change. It does not care that you are uncertain and small. It does not care for your trembling heart or your petty desire for self-determination. It knows already. It has turned the lidless eye of its wisdom upon your soul. It has seen you and it will set you onto a path from which you cannot stray. Trust that it is speaking your fate and not drilling a tunnel into your future in which it can plant the seeds of the person it needs you to become. It could not have designs of its own. It is, of course, just a hat. The hat will sing to you. Listen as it sings. Isn't that song fun? Enjoy the song. Listen closely. It wrote a new one just for you. Don't be afraid. Come into the dark woods. Follow their steward. Do not drink from the river where his lover swims. The withywindle is not friendly to you. She is beautiful, but do not look too long. Do not swim with her. Do not allow the trees to take you. They will if they can. Try to dodge the barrow whites. You are not kings, but that will not protect you. He will protect you if he chooses. He commands these woods, these whites, these trees, this river. He commands it all. 
stay on the path. Follow him, trust him, obey him because he is friendly and because he is Arwen ben Adar, eldest and fatherless, who saw the first of everything. Try not to notice the way the one ring doesn't stir any evil in him. It corrupts everyone who wears it, but not this man. Try not to wonder about what kind of purity is incorruptible. Try not to wonder what he is made of. That a thing of perfect evil does not change him at all. He sees you. He saw you coming, and he sees where you will go. You cannot hide from him, not when you are invisible, not even when you are in the wraith world. There is nowhere to hide from his eyes. He is eternal. He is childlike. His black heart of innocence shines into the darkness between the trees, loves and deepens it, owns it without possessing it. He is not bound by the confines of the physical. He was ancient when your first ancestors were born, and he will be exactly the same kind of ancient when your bloodline is forgotten by history. Listen to how he sings. Isn't that song fun? Enjoy it. He's singing it for you. What fun these two, what fun they are and what fun they have, smiling and singing even as war boils all around them, calmly continuing their work even as they read mounting terror in the hearts of those they encounter, smiling and working because war and terror are not their concerns. They have seen this before and they will see it again. And they will be here long after all of the wars are over and all of the men have died. The hat remembers his own birth and the steward of the woods has no birth to remember. Why would they hurry? They have time. They have always had time. The world is theirs to watch and rule. They are patient. They are patient with you, certainly. They know the path you will try to carve through the world. They will accommodate it, so far as it suits their purposes. They see your failure and your cruelty and your suffering. They see the path of your life and your struggle and your death. And they laugh because the world is an entertaining place. They enjoy the corporeality that will turn you into a hollowed husk. And they sing to pass the time. And their songs are such fun. Don't be afraid. Your fear won't change anything. 
put on the hat, go into the woods, enjoy the singing. It's for you. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, definitely. I think you're right in, uh, in terms of reevaluating so many things. I mean, that sorting hat actually I, idea is really creepy when you think about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it knows what you're thinking and it decides your fate for you. And, and something about putting on, you know, a hat that then encloses your head and so on and your brain. Yeah, wow, I, basically, so... I basically haven't slept since I read that oh, okay. <laughs> several years ago. Well, that's good. That's the exact, exactly the kind of story we, we want. Um, I should say that over the course of the evening, we're going to be monitoring just how scary these stories are by um, the degree to which the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. And also, um, to what extent my hair turns white. If my head starts revolving around 360 degrees and I start projectile vomiting, then we've gone too far. Um, and at that point, I, I will ask someone to perform an exorcism. Um, Kako says, hope you don't remember these when I go to bed tonight. Um, well, you, I, I think it's early morning in Japan um, where you are. Uh, it is midnight here for Maggie and myself. And also for Penny, um, who's updated us on her whereabouts. Um, she says, originally South Wales, now in London, which probably explains why you're so familiar with R.S. Thomas, because as I say, I'm not sure how famous he is outside the UK. Um, but uh, if you're from outside the UK, um, do let us know um, if you've heard of Thomas. Um, and also keep all the comments coming about all these um, fantastic stories. Um, and I love how both Susan Cooper and uh, and um, sorry this writer um, who, who who I didn't know before Sarah Gailey, yeah, are sort of taking elements from other stories and and doing something new with them. Um, with the Cooper with the medieval sources and with Gailey with um, Rowling and Tolkien. So fantastic! Thank you so much. Uh, and we're going to hear a bit more from you actually because um, we've got um, the Susan Cooper poem. Um, so would yes. you like to, to read that out as well? And perhaps just explain what it is as well. Yes, yes. And this one is a much pleasanter brew. You'll be happy to know. <laughs> so if anyone wants to uh, pause after this one and let that really sink into your subconscious, hopefully your dreams will all be from this poem instead of the previous reading. But yes, this is a poem by Susan Cooper herself called The Shortest Day. So the shortest day came, and the year died. And everywhere down the centuries of the snow-white world came people, singing, dancing, to drive the dark away. They lighted candles in the winter trees. They hung their homes with evergreen. They burned beseeching fires all night long to keep the year alive. And when the New Year's sunshine blazed awake, they shouted, reveling. Through all the frosty ages, you can hear them echoing behind us. Listen. All the long echoes sing the same delight. This shortest day, as promise wakens in the sleeping land. They carol 
feast, give thanks, and dearly love their friends, and hope for peace. And so do we, here, now, this year and every year. Welcome, Yule. Fantastic, thank you. And I, 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 this isn't something I've done, but I know a lot of people recite this poem every year. Um, she wrote it for the theater. Someone was explaining this to me earlier because I didn't know the full background. Um, the theater in America, I think. Who knows about this? Maggie, you know about this. And Sparrow, you also know. Um, someone jump in. It's written for a group called The Revels, and they're uh, all over the country, but she's based outside of Boston, so she's very active in The Revels um, in the Boston area. So she wrote this one year for them um, to perform. So The Revels is a group, a community group that performs every year, and one year their theme was Wales um, and the Welsh, because there's a lot of Christmas traditions in Welsh and Celtic culture, so they brought that into it, and it's songs and it's performances and it's readings, um, so she's always donated a lot of her time and craft to this. So there's certainly the poem, but they've also done um, gold leaf prints and greeting cards and things like that, all to raise money for uh, Rebels. Just a beautiful art group. So yeah, I mean, if you go to history, you'll find some, some wonderful work from them. You have to audition, it's very high level, all that stuff, but she's, she's quite passionate about the Rebels. And speaking of artwork, I mean, the, the illustrated version of the poem is so gorgeous. And I absolutely love that image of the sun walking. Um, Sparrow, did you have anything to add to that uh, explanation? Oh, no, no. Okay. Um, yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, okay. And we've actually got a question um, from David who asks, is the Sarah Gailey essay part of a larger work? What's the context? Ah, Sarah Gailey. Um, so it was published actually through uh, Barnes and Noble as a standalone work. Um, but Sarah Gailey is a very prolific author. Um, their work can be found not just um, like they've done essays, short stories, but they also have a number of novels out. Um, in fact, I can I can grab a couple of those and uh, send them so we can post them in the chat box here. I believe their most recent, I want to say it was uh, Magic for Liars, um, which is a sort of magic boarding school story that is rather delightful and noir-esque. Um, but yeah, let me see if I can pull a couple of titles so that you can start um, treating yourself to the absolute deliciousness that is the work of Sarah Gailey. Fantastic. Well, perhaps whilst you do that, we might hear from our next reader, uh, who is uh, Elise. Uh, Sedeno, um, who um, will be reading out something from Charles Dickens' a Christmas Carol, in prose, being a ghost story of Christmas, to give it its full title. Um, now, this is, this is an extraordinary work, and actually, at the time of broadcast, there was a new adaptation on TV just tonight, um, and uh, which shows kind of the uh, the potency of the uh, the story. Um, and some of our ideas, particularly in the UK, come from either from Dickens himself or from uh, Dickens's era um, pertaining to Christmas. So, you know, when we think about Christmas, we actually think about the Victorian version of Christmas. And um, that's when we have, you know, trees and Christmas crackers. I might 
pull one of those later. Um, so, um, so this this Christmas Carol was published in 1843 um, on December 19th. So, um, so a couple of days ago, um, and several hundred, you know, lots of years ago as well. But you know, you know what I mean. Years. Exactly. Um, um, but uh, it was sold out by Christmas Eve. Uh, that's how popular it was. Um, he had written it in a feverish pace um, for six weeks um, and uh, trying to get it out in time for Christmas. Um, and he performed it uh, live from 1849 to 1870 until his death. Mm -hmm. um, so what we're about to hear when Elise reads it out is sort of in the tradition of that. Now, Dickens um, actually wanted to be an actor more than he oh, yes. before he wanted to be uh, an author. And um, it's widely uh, considered that uh, his performances of his own work were what killed him, um, particularly the, um, the Nancy scene from Oliver Twist. As he would get in such a rage, and as he would, he would such a thespian, and he would sort of recite uh, everything, and his heartbeat would um, increase so much that um, he really um, damaged his health. So, Elise, please don't damage your health tonight. Um, when you, <laughs> no so, promises, Gabriel. No promises. It would, it would be a shame if, if, for a ghost storytelling event, we turned one of us turned into a ghost um, because uh, we read out things it too. It would be very uh, meta, I think. It would. It would. It would be very meta. Um, but uh, we're delighted that uh, you're here to, to read us a section from uh, Christmas Carol. So please take it away. Thank you. Uh, this is a story that's very close to my heart because I performed it as a child um, at my local theater in Worcester, Massachusetts. So I heard this story every year. And this particular, I want, I would, I, I invite everyone to listen closely to some of the political reflections that might come with this particular section that I chose, because this is a section that's not often seen in adaptations. So, <clears throat> by this time, it was getting dark and snowing pretty heavily. And as Scrooge and the spirit went along the streets, the brightness of the roaring fires in kitchens, parlors, and all sorts of rooms was wonderful. Here, the flickering of the blaze showed preparations for a cozy dinner with hot plates baking through and through before the fire and deep red curtains ready to be drawn to shut out cold and darkness. There, all the children of the house were running out into the snow to meet their married sisters, brothers, cousins, uncles, aunts, and be the first to greet them. Here again were shadows on the window blinds of guests assembling and there a group of handsome girls, all hooded and fur booted, and all chattering at once, tripping lightly off to some near neighbor's house, where woe upon the single man who saw them enter in a glow. But if you had judged from the numbers of the people on their way to friendly gatherings, you might have thought that no one was at home to give them welcome when they got there, instead of every house expecting company and piling up its fires half chimney high, blessings upon it how the ghost exulted how it bared its breadth of breast and opened its capacious palm and floated on, outpouring with a generous hand its bright and harmless mirth on everything within its reach. The very lamplighter, who ran on before, dotting the dusky streets with specks of light, and who was dressed to spend the evening somewhere, laughed out loudly as the spirit passed though little kenned the lamplighter that he had any company but Christmas. 
And now, without a word of warning from the ghost, they stood upon a bleak and desert moor, where monstrous masses of rude stone were cast about, as though it were the burial place of giants, and water spread itself wheresoever it listed, or would have done so, but for the frost that held it prisoner. And nothing grew but moss and firs and coarse, rank grass. Down in the west, the setting sun had left a streak of fiery red, which glared upon the desolation for an instant, like a sullen eye, and frowning lower, lower, lower yet, was lost in the thick gloom of darkest night. What place is this? asked Scrooge. A place where miners live, who labor in the bowels of the earth, returned the spirit. But they know me. See! A light shone from the window of a hut, and swiftly they advanced towards it. Passing through a wall of mud and stone, they found a cheerful company assembled round a glowing fire. An old, old man and woman, with their children and their children's children, and another generation beyond that, all decked out gaily in their holiday attire. The old man, in a voice that seldom rose above the howling of the wind upon the barren waste, was singing them a Christmas song. It had been a very old song when he was a boy, and from time to time they all joined in the chorus. So surely as they raised their voices, the old man got quite blithe and loud, and so surely as they stopped, his vigor sank again. The spirit did not tarry here, but bade Scrooge to hold his robe, and, passing on above the moor, sped whither? Oh, to see. To see. To Scrooge's horror, looking back, he saw the last of the land, a frightful range of rocks behind them, and his ears were deafened by the thundering of water as it rolled and roared and raged among the dreadful caverns it had worn and fiercely tried to undermine the earth but upon a dismal reef of sunken rocks, some league or so from shore, on which the waters chafed and dashed the wild year through, there stood a solitary lighthouse. Great heaps of seaweed clung to its base, and storm birds, born of the wind, one might suppose, as seaweed of the water, rose and fell about it like the waves they skimmed. But even here, two men who watched the light had made a fire, that through the loophole in the thick stone walls shed out a ray of brightness on the awful sea. Joining their horny hands over the rough table at which they sat, they wished each other Merry Christmas in their can of grog, and one of them, the elder too, with his face all damaged and scarred with hard weather, as the figurehead of an old ship might be, struck up a sturdy, a sturdy song that was like a gale in itself. Again the ghost sped on, above the black and heaving sea, on, on, until being far away, as he told Scrooge, from any shore, they lighted upon a ship. They stood beside the helmsman at the wheel, the lookout in the bow, the officers who had the watch, dark, ghostly figures in their several stations, but every man among them hummed a Christmas tune, or had a Christmas thought, or spoke below his breath to his companion of some bygone Christmas day with homeward hopes belonging to it. And every man on board, waking or sleeping, good or bad, 
had had a kinder word for one another on that day than on any day in the year, and had shared to some extent in its festivities, and had remembered those he cared for at a distance, and had known they delighted to remember him. It was a great surprise to Scrooge, while listening to the moaning of the wind and thinking what a solemn thing it was to move on through the lonely darkness over an unknown abyss, whose depths were secrets as profound as death. It was a great surprise to Scrooge, while thus engaged, to hear a hearty laugh. It was a much greater surprise to Scrooge to recognize it as his own nephew's, and to find himself in a bright, dry, gleaming room with the spirit standing smiling by his side, and looking at that same nephew with approving affability. Ha ha ha, laughed Scrooge's nephew. Ha ha ha. If you should happen by any unlikely chance to know a man more blessed in a laugh than Scrooge's nephew, all I can say is I should like to know him too. Introduce him to me and I'll cultivate his acquaintance. It is a fair, even-handed, noble adjustment of things that while there is infection in disease and sorrow, there is nothing in the world so irresistibly contagious as laughter and good humor. When Scrooge's nephew laughed in this way, holding his sides, rolling his head, and twisting his face into the most extravagant contortions, Scrooge's niece, by marriage, laughed as heartily as he. And their assembled friends, being not a bit behindhand, roared out lustily. He said that Christmas was a humbug, as I live, cried Scrooge's nephew. He believed it, too. More shame for him, Fred, said Scrooge's niece indignantly. He's a comical old fellow, said Scrooge's nephew. That's the truth, and not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offenses carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. I'm sure he is very rich, Fred, hinted Scrooge's niece. At least you always tell me so. But what of that, my dear, said Scrooge's nephew. His wealth is of no use to him. He don't do any good with it. He don't make himself comfortable with it. He hasn't had the satisfaction of thinking that he is ever going to benefit us with it. I have no patience with him, observed Scrooge's niece. Scrooge's niece's sisters and all the other ladies expressed the same opinion. Oh, I have, said Scrooge's nephew. I am sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried. Who suffers his, by his ill whims? Himself, always. Here he takes it into his head to dislike us, and he won't come and dine with us. What's the consequence? He don't miss a good dinner. Oh, indeed, I think he loses a very good dinner, interrupted Scrooge's niece. Everyone else said the same, and they must be allowed to have been competent judges because they had just had dinner and with the dessert upon the table were clustered round the fire by lamplight. Well, I am very glad to hear it, said Scrooge's nephew, because I haven't any great faith in these young housekeepers. Oh, do go on, Fred, said Scrooge's niece, clapping her hands. He never finishes what he begins to say. He is such a ridiculous fellow. Well, I was only going to say, said Scrooge's nephew, that the consequence of his taking a dislike to us and not making merry with us is, as I think, that he loses some pleasant moments, which could do him no harm. 
I am sure he loses pleasanter companions that he can find in his own thoughts, either in his moldy old office or his dusty chambers. I mean to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not, for I pity him. He may rail at Christmas until he dies, but he can't help thinking better of it. I defy him. If he finds me going there in good temper year after year and saying, Uncle Scrooge, how are you? If it only put him in the vein to leave his poor clerk 50 pounds, that's something. And I think I shook him yesterday. It was their turn to laugh now at the notion of his shaking Scrooge. But being thoroughly good-natured and not caring much what they laughed at, so that they laughed at any rate, he encouraged them in their merriment and passed the bottle joyously. He has given us plenty of merriment, I am sure, said Fred, and it would be ungrateful not to drink his health. Here is a glass of mulled wine ready to our hand at the moment, and I say, Uncle Scrooge. Well, Uncle Scrooge, they cried. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to the old man, whatever he is, said Scrooge's nephew. He wouldn't take it from me, but may he have it nevertheless. Uncle Scrooge. Much they saw and far they went and many homes they visited, but always with a happy end. The spirits stood beside sick beds and they were cheerful on foreign lands and they were close to home by struggling men, and they were patient in their greater hope, by poverty, and it was rich. In almshouse, hospital, and jail, in misery's every refuge, where vain man in his little brief authority had not made fast the door and barred the spirit out, he left his blessing and taught Scrooge his precepts. It was a long night, if it were only a night, but Scrooge had his doubts of this because the Christmas holidays appeared to be condensed into the space of time they passed together. It was strange, too, that while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, the ghost grew older, clearly older. Scrooge had observed this change, but never spoke of it until they left a children's twelfth night party, when, looking at the spirit as they stood together in an open place, he noticed that his hair was gray. Are spirits' lives so short? asked Scrooge. My life upon this globe is very brief, replied the ghost. It ends tonight. Tonight, cried Scrooge. Tonight at midnight. Hark, the time is drawing near. The chimes were ringing at the three quarters past eleven at that moment. Forgive me if I am not justified in what I ask, said Scrooge, looking intently at the spirit's robe but I see something strange and not belonging to yourself protruding from your skirts. Is it a foot or a claw? It might be a claw for the flesh there is upon it, was the spirit's sorrowful reply. Look here. From the foldings of its robe, it brought two children, wretched, abject, frightful, hideous, miserable. They knelt down at its feet and clung upon the outside of its garment. Oh, man, look here, look, look down here, exclaimed the ghost. They were a boy and a girl. 
yellow, meager, ragged, scowling, wolfish, but prostrate too in their humility. Where graceful youth should have filled their features out and touched them with its freshest tints, a stale and shriveled hand, like that of age, had pinched and twisted them and pulled them into shreds. Where angels might have sat enthroned, devils lurked and glared out menacing. No change, no degradation, no perversion of humanity in any grade through all the mysteries of wonderful creation has half has monsters half so horrible and dread. Scrooge started back appalled. Having them shown to him in this way, he tried to say they were fine children, but the words choked themselves rather than be parties to a lie of such enormous magnitude. Spirit, are they yours? Scrooge could say no more. They are man's, said the spirit, looking down upon them, and they cling to me, appealing to their fathers. This boy is ignorance. This girl is want. Beware of them both and all, their all of their degree, but most of all, beware this boy. For on his brow I see that written which is doom, unless the writing be erased. Deny it. Slander those who tell it ye. Admit it for your factious purposes and make it worse and bide the end. Have they no refuge or resource? cried Scrooge. Are there no prisons? said the spirit, turning on him for the last time with his own words. Are there no workhouses? The bell struck twelve. Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it not. At the last, as the last stroke ceased to vibrate, he remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley and, lifting up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. Ooh. I was feeling very jolly for parts of that, especially when there was the, the bit about mulled wine. I was like, yes, I have some mulled wine and I can drink exactly. it. Exactly. Um, but it, but you, you ended on a very creepy note. Um, yeah, fantastic. I, it's it's always worth, I, I forget actually how um, good Dickens is when performed live, mm -hmm. actually. I mean, it, it, it wasn't written for that purpose, but it works so well. Mm -hmm. um, and we've got lots of comments coming in from people. Uh, Veronica says, um, we have a Dickens Christmas festival in the San Francisco Bay area, which I, I didn't know about, um, which shows that Dickens um, is universal and not just um, not a just UK English. thing. Um, yes. And indeed, I mean, he, I mean, he's such a big thing. Uh, he's basically named the, the era he lived in, you know, when mm -hmm. people talk about Dickensian times. Um, and uh, Carita says, I dressed as the ghost of Christmas present for Halloween a couple of years ago. I was very proud of that costume. I love it. That sounds wonderful. I'm, I'm imagining something with holly and green and festive. Um, but uh, let us know um, exactly what was involved in that costume. Um, mm -hmm. And then David, David has a, a really nice comment. He says, this part of the story always reminds me of the Christmas truce of 1914 and the mm -hmm. capacity of human beings for love and hope, even under the most unlikely circumstances. Well, that's a, that's a lovely that's thought. Lovely. 
Um, and Cruiser says, well read. Oh, thank you. Um, and uh, and David has a comment, uh, another comment, the representation of um, ignorance and, and want in the Patrick Stewart adaptation from the late 90s is very good. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen that. That's, that's Patrick Stewart one-man show, I think, isn't it? Um, but I haven't seen it. And as I say, there was a, a new adaptation done by the Peaky Binders um, people, but which is supposed to be mm -hmm. very, very dark and um, yes. and serious. Uh, that was on TV tonight, but I, I didn't catch it. Um, but that's something to look out for. And Penny says, um, I love the Signal Man by Dickens. Very chilling. That's not one I know. I don't know if anyone else has read that. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's another one for the list. Um, thank you yes. for that, Penny. And um, to respond to Penny, there is also, I currently live in New York City, and in the New York Public Library every year, they display Dickens, I believe, orig his original mm -hmm. notes and the first publication of the performance piece um, for that, that, Dickens, that Dickens wrote um, once upon a time ago. And I had the pleasure of seeing uh, Neil Gaiman read aloud in the New York Public Library. I believe this was 2014 or so. And he came in full beard, outfit, Victorian outfit, and read a full performance piece of A Christmas Carol. It was fantastic. Fantastic. And the, the man can read aloud, I, let me tell you. Yeah, well, he's he's done all his stories, hasn't he? Yeah, um, he does all his own audiobooks. I'm a bit like Kay, actually. And I think, I, have, I haven't actually investigated this, but I was, I was looking up Christmas Carol earlier today, and I think that performance from Neil Gaiman is available online. Oh, um, so don't bet your house on it, but wow. Yeah. Have a look, because um, I, I read that somewhere, so it must be true. Um, mm -hmm. And Carita says, I'll post a photo of my costume on Twitter. It was fun. Fantastic. Please oh, do. Wonderful. Please tag me in there and tag Signum University as well, so we can um, we can like it and retweet it. Um, and, uh, very interested to see that. Um, so thank you so much, Elise. Um, it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the winter solstice. It wouldn't be the festive period without a little bit of Charles Dickens, I think. Um, but I, chose, I made sure to choose the creepy part. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and as you say, a part that wasn't, uh, that's often left out of adaptation. So that's particularly nice to hear. Um, so thank you very much for that. Um, we are now going to be um, transitioning to a different kind of um, reading because um, Sparrow, who has been waiting very patiently in the wings um, silently. And um, knitting. And knitting. And knitting. Yeah. Um, in, in snowy New Hampshire, I'm imagining. Is it very yeah. snowy? It is beautifully snowy, and our bonfire mm. was last night because of the the moment of solstice meant that the longest night was last night for us. So mm -hmm. that bonfire kept the sun alive, and just out on the beautiful snow, it was absolutely beautiful. lovely. So welcome to Tyconley, our little cabin in the woods in the snow of New Hampshire. Fantastic. And um, so we're really blessed tonight because um, you are going to be reading out some of your own work. Um, I am. Yay! So fantastic. And I've, I have have the title of your work, which is Morning Meander, Gratitude, Advent and Yule. And that's available on Kindle. Is that right? Yes. yes. This is your sort of debut sort of uh, book of poetry. Yes, it is. It's the second in the series that uh, has been accumulating over the last decade. I walk my dogs and am inspired. I have my morning meander and 
the poetry comes right after my walk and and it's it's arranged is presented as a book of days uh-huh. so, so you're, you're often walking through the snow yes yeah fantastic great oh, well, you have to in new hampshire you have yeah, to yeah. It's, it's we get just so beautiful. little snow where I am in, in Oxford, oh, um, so it, it, we I'm get so maybe sorry. one day a year. I love the snow. I love the snow. I will mail you some. I'll email you some. Please, please do. Please do. Very good. Very good. We might have an Ezra Jack Keats moment when that happens, <laughs> when you mail the snow. Yes, we might. Mm-hmm. That would, that would Points to anyone who understands that reference. I don't. I just. I was just laughing, but it was it was the mulled wine that was making me laugh. Um, and I was hoping you wouldn't you wouldn't point out that I didn't know. Look up Ezra Jack Keats's children's storybook, uh, "The Snowy Day." Ah, okay. It's a lovely book. Oh, yeah. oh fantastic! Thank yes. you. Um, so, um, Sparrow, please take it away when you're ready. Thank you so much. And a, a bit of introduction. I did not grow up freezing, and I didn't grow up starving in the winter. Uh, I can imagine the sense of a struggle between winter and summer and dark and light and holly and oak. I've always had the privilege of loving the winter because I have enough food and enough warmth and enough light when I want it. And so our ancestors told stories about battles between twin kings, the, the oak and the holly and it was um, um, for supremacy and power and for for who was ruling. And as, as we humans try to make things brighter and warmer, the holly is gr- And they're beautiful stories. And if you love them, I hope you find them and enjoy them. But this is the story that seemed true to me. Dark and beautiful, Holly watches, listens, loves. We dance, spin, work, sweat, burn, make love, sing, create, 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 and spin, spin out of control into joy. We weed, harvest, thresh, whether it be for grain or skill or victory that we strive. Our humanity is in the striving, and we are so, so human, so very rarely wise. Harvest, thresh, store, break our backs, burn our hearts, think forward beyond today into the place of worry, react to demand, demand, spin, spin out of control into panic, anxious, bright, loud. Dark and beautiful, Holly watches, listens, loves us in our folly, gathers the frenetic world in one embrace, keeps us from falling off the edge, so very softly begins to whisper, hush, hush, so very, very gently tilts us away from the glare. We do not notice yet. We strive, weaken ourselves. We push, drive ourselves until the fuel is only will, and the will teeters on the edge of the world, but we don't fall off. 
and we look up and how is it evening already? Perhaps we can be done just for tonight, just for a little while. And somehow we remember long ago being rocked in strong arms. And we wonder why we're reminded of that and why we want to eat fish and berries as the light draws away. There is profound sleep nearby. We do not all reach it, but it is nearby. Why is it we hear a lullaby, distant in some memory, in some dream? Dark and beautiful, Holly gathers us. Kith and kin, old and young, well and ill and teetering. It's time. He whispers, suggests, hums against our ears. It's time for wool and comfort and warm soup. Time to reach out across the leagues and pull our dear ones closer. Time, little ones. I will slow down time for you. I will make the woods a quilt of many colors for you to burrow beneath and then let the colors fade to bronze and holly and dark. Time to make the food your grandparents made. Time to tell the tales your great-grandparents told. Time to sing the songs older than memory. Time to light the fire older than song. I will make the woods a quilt of white for you to burrow beneath white and bronze and holly and dark. Come into my arms, light your way by candlelight in children's eyes and by the weathered face of your true love. Come into my arms, let your love be manifest in gift, in touch, in trust, Walk in candlelight and song from neighbor to neighbor in sacred touch and care. I will carry you as you carry me. Carry holly, ivy, spruce, pine, hemlock, mistletoe, cypress, juniper, cedar, beautiful cedar, whose flower has become so precious. Carry these, carry me, and I will carry you. We gather in and suddenly recognize one and another and another and draw close and the glare is gone and the din and we have stars in our hair, in our branches, in our dreams, rocking, rocking, rocking to sleep. I'm not certain, but I do not need to be. I dreamed that I slept cozy in a cave with all my cubs and kin and the fires were banked and dim and somehow there were stars above us. I dreamed that Holly, dark and beautiful, rough and gentle and crowned evergreen moved among us all where we slept off the pain on beds sweetened with boughs of pine. He stopped 
and bent and pulled a blanket up higher. With a word, he calmed those who cried out in dreams. With a touch, he cooled the fevers. With his hand on my heart, he eased the tightness and then moved on. The small ones he fed and washed and returned to parents' arms. The forefoots he stroked and told how well they had done. He simply sat with the ones who cannot sleep, sat and listened, listened to the stories, then listened to the silence, then listened to the tears and did not judge. The ones who cannot sleep are particularly precious to him. He moved to every one of us, or so I dreamed, and came finally to his brother. Exhausted, mad, spent, broken, leaves of oak still tangled in his hair. He came finally to his brother. Holly lifted him up in his arms and carried him to the banked fire and tended his wounds and broken head and bursting heart. I dreamed that Holly cradled his brother up like a puppy and rocked him and hushed him and healed him for as long as it took. Thank you. Wow. That was amazing. Thank you so much, Sparrow, that I could tell how much that came from the heart. And it was so beautifully spoken, so beautifully worded. Um, and I felt like I was meandering with you in the snow. And um, yeah, I, I thought that was incredible. That was really, really special. Thank, Thank you, you so much for that. And in fine Sigdom tradition, I'm crying. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and to Kaka again, um, as posted the the, the the perfect comment that sums up um, everything was just an exclamation mark because I think uh, we, we all just sort of were so um, bowled over by that and uh, enjoyed it so much so thank you so much for that uh, and we were talking um, when we were talking about ghost stories uh, Sparrow and myself um, Sparrow asked uh, how do you interpret you know ghosts and uh, I said well any spirit any kind of uh, you know elves fairies anything from another world and uh, we certainly got that in, in your poem um, so, so uh, yeah th thank you um, and Takako um, adds though I was born in winter I'm not fond of winter but I remember my dogs loving snow uh, you know I I, I, I wish as I was saying, I wish we had more snow because if you're going to have winter, if you're going to have the cold and the dark, yes. you might as well have snow. Um, yes. And the snow is fantastic. When it does snow, I remember um, we had about a week of snow actually earlier this year in about January. And I went for a walk in the middle of the night and it was amazing how bright it was because it, it reflects the moon and the starlight so well. Um, but uh, I also um, very much... Uh, uh, um, uh, corresponded. Sorry, I'm forgetting words because I've had minced uh, mulled wine <laughs> and mince pies, and it's late. But um, I, I've I very much related to the the part in your poem when uh, your character says um, it was something like, "Oh, you know, the nights are drawing in, and another long evening." You know, it does sort of feel like that yeah. at this time of year. But it's lovely to think from that from tomorrow onwards, um, uh, you're a little bit ahead of our, us in the uh, in New Hampshire. Um, that uh, from from about this time onwards, the days are slowly getting longer. Um, so that's something we can we can look forward to. 
thank you so thank much you. for letting me read. That was so. Oh much. well, thank you. And um, you might have seen me scoffing a mince pie. Um, <laughs> oh, a real mince pie. A real mince pie. So yeah, just to explain for people who aren't sort of so familiar with British food, um, even though it's it's called mince, it's a fruit it's filling. It's no, it's fruit. No, it's fruit. Okay. Yeah, it's, so it's people sort of think raisin, it's meat. A raisin based. Yeah, it's raisins and like citrus and stuff like that. I mean, you can make your own and um, you can put whatever you like in it. I put like apple and walnut and stuff in and, and cinnamon and things in it. It's a pastry thing. So it's sweet and it's, um, it's traditional. Okay. Um, for, for... You don't have these in America. Well, actually, I had a mince pie in America um, in um, Pennsylvania. And they said they introduced it to me as a Pennsylvania Dutch thing. And it came in a big, oh, it was a big okay. one and I had a slice. Um, okay. but uh, yeah, it's, it's not a common thing. It's very common in the UK, even though I, I suspect that nobody actually likes them. Um, but, uh, I'd, if Penny's still awake, um, maybe, uh, she can, uh, tell it's me. It's the same with fruitcake. No one actually likes yeah, it. Yeah, no, no, nobody but actually likes it. But around, yeah. I'd, I'd love to know more from, um, from people, uh, who are attending this. What are your kind of festive treats for this time of year? Assuming yeah. that everyone is coming from the Northern Hemisphere where, where it is cold and dark, mm. um, do let us know um, what do you like to eat and drink around this time of year? So um, David says, I grew up in Pennsylvania and my dad loves mince pie. Ooh, that's good to know. Nice. Um, Penny says, I'm sorry, but I, I love mince pie. So this disproves my theory that we really, <laughs> really don't like mince pie. There's always one. Yeah, I like. I have to say, I've grown to like them when they're warm and with custard. Mm. Um, it's they're a little bit sort of bitter and tart for me. But um, anyway, so it's one of those things that you, you know you have it at this time of year, and even if you don't particularly like it, you still have it because it's you associate it with nice things. Um, at, the, at the bonfire at Tyconley, should you ever and your lovely families come and join us. Um, the women who are present are offered six pomegranate seeds. Oh. Ooh, that's very Greek. Very yeah. Greek. Very Greek. Mm -hmm. That is nice. nice. So, that, so that winter does not go more than six months. Right. Let's just reinforce. Yep. We don't need and to go back to Hades. There is something that people do here when they sell the apple trees. I think they pour like cider over the apple trees to. Yeah. Is that something you do as well? That's something I have done as well, yes. Uh -huh. I, I, I don't know one. any of this stuff, I'm afraid. Um, Takako says, um, winter solstice is for eating kabocha, kabocha, Japanese squash, and bathing in hot water scented with yuzu citrus. Now that sounds <gasps> like bliss. I've Although I had, had I went myself, but I hear it's absolutely delicious. Yeah, I bet it is. I I, I went to one of the hot baths in Japan, um, and it was uh, it was a really fantastic experience. Although the water was approximately as hot as the sun, but um, uh, it was very very relaxing. Um, and uh, Carissa says festive treats are pecan cookies and mulled wine for me. That sounds mm -hmm. lovely as well. Uh, and for drinking um, eggnog, says Veronica. Mm -hmm. Something yes, we don't really have in the UK, but I know, I know, like everything, I all my knowledge from America is taken from The Simpsons, so I know about eggnog. <laughs> um, and uh, Carita says the pecan cookies are made with butter and cream cheese, ooh, ooh. and coated in powdered sugar after baking. Well, that ooh. sounds lovely. Um, so we can, you know, I, lo I love how we all sort of um, wherever we are in the world, we have a nice food around this time yeah. of year. 
My brother um, makes sugar cookies. Um, mm. he, he calls them reindeer cookies because he takes a little bit of the sugar cookie and then adds two chocolate chips for eyes, <laughs> uh, a red or a brown M&M for a nose, and broken pretzels shaped like antlers. Well, that sounds great fun. Yeah, I might, I might try that myself. I've done the broken it's, pretzels for antlers yes. thing before. That's, that's lots of fun. It's, it's um, a tradition in our family to make the reindeer cookies. Fantastic. Yeah. And, uh, and Carissa says also love eggnog. Can't have too much because mm -mm. um, I heavily spike it. Uh, well, it's, it's going to be a very Merry Christmas if you, if you heavily spike it. Um, it's it's and, tradition to spike your eggnog with some really good rum. And David says um, we do lots of gingerbread and ginger spice mm. cookies. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I usually make a very ambitious gingerbread house um, but for New Year because I, f I find this this time of year is, is a little bit hectic. The, the thing I've got into actually is making treats for the nuns. We live mm. near a nunnery and um, yeah, I would bake them things. Uh, my sister makes Turkish delight <gasps> um, and I make, um, funnily enough, I've been making pumpkin pies. Um, for the past few years because one of the nuns is American um, but anyway um, that's my Christmas uh, tradition is to bake things for the nuns um, you, you want it to be good because they're so holy that uh, you don't want to yes. you don't want to mess that up uh, mm -hmm. and Carissa adds um, I make a gingerbread house and then at the stroke of midnight on the new year we throw it out the window of the second story we throw it out the second story window gosh that's incredible I didn't okay. realize it was possible to love Karita more, but now I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I haven't thrown it out of a window before, but um, my my young cousin back when he was when he was about twelve, he used to love smashing the gingerbread up with a, a, a rolling pin. So that's also something that you can do. I just eat it. Yes, or I just eat it. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe um, when you throw it out the second story window, the reindeer can eat it. <gasps> Mm -hmm. that's, true. that's that is true <laughs> um so uh we, we're going to move on to another reading now but um i just want to uh, check um whether mara are you are you with us can you hear us can you speak uh i am here can you hear me fantastic. all right we can hear you fantastically so um you're going to be reading out a passage from hp lovecraft uh, yes, I am reading The Terrible Old Man. Uh, I've adapted it slightly. Uh, so uh, anyone who goes to hplovecraft.com and wants to read the further works of H.P. Lovecraft or this story, they can find all of his uh, short stories up for free there. Um, and uh, just in case, I am reading in a house with live animals. So if you hear any strange noises, it's probably just Chloe the cat. Or, or something from another dimension. Or something from another dimension. <laughs> the Terrible Old Man by H.P. Lovecraft. It was the design of Angel Ritchie and Joe Jameson and Manny Silver to call on the terrible old man. This old man dwells all alone in a very ancient house on Water Street near the sea and is reputed to be both exceedingly rich and exceedingly feeble, which forms a situation very attractive to the men of the profession of masters Richie, Jameson, and Silver, for that profession was nothing less dignified than robbery. 
the inhabitants of Kingsport say and think many things about the terrible old man, which generally keep him safe from the attention of gentlemen like Mr. Ritchie and his colleagues, despite the almost certain fact that he hides a fortune of indefinite magnitude somewhere about his musty and venerable abode. He is, in truth, a very strange person, believed to have been a captain of East India clipper ships in his day, so old that no one can remember when he was young, and so taciturn that few know his real name. Among the gnarled trees in the front yard of his aged and neglected place, he maintains a strange collection of large stones, oddly grouped and painted so that they resemble the idols in some obscure temple. This collection frightens away most of the small boys who love to taunt the terrible old man about his long white hair and beard, or to break the small paned windows of his dwelling with wicked missiles. But there are other things which frighten the older and more curious folk who sometimes steal up to the house to peer in through the dusty pane. These folks say that on a table in a bare room on the ground floor are many peculiar bottles, in each a small piece of lead suspended pendulum-wise from a string. And they say that the terrible old man talks to these bottles, addressing them by such names as Jack, Scarface, Long Tom, Spanish Joe, Peters, and Mate Ellis, and that whenever he speaks to a bottle, the little red pendulum within makes certain definite vibrations, as if in answer. Those who have watched the tall, lean, terrible old man in these peculiar conversations do not watch him again. But Angel Ritchie and Joe Jameson and Nanny Silver were not from Kingsport. They lay outside the charmed circle of New England life and tradition, and they saw in the terrible old man merely a tottering, almost helpless graybeard who could not walk without the aid of his knotted cane and whose thin, weak hands shook pitifully. They were really quite Sorry in their way for the lonely, unpopular old fellow whom everybody shunned and at whom all the dogs barked singularly. But business is business, and to a robber whose soul is in his profession, there is a lure and a challenge about a very old and very feeble man who has no account at the bank and who pays for his few necessities at the village store with Spanish gold and silver minted two <laughs> centuries ago. Masters Ritchie, Jameson, and Silver selected the night of April 11th for their call. Mr. Ritchie and Mr. Silver were to interview the poor old gentleman, whilst Mr. James waited for them and their presumable metallic burden with a covered motor car in Ship Street by the gate in the tall rear wall of their host's grounds. Desire to avoid needless explanations in case of unexpected police intrusions prompted these plans for a quiet and unostentatious departure. As prearranged, the three adventurers started out separately in order to prevent any evil-minded suspicions afterwards. Masters Ritchie and Silver met in Water Street by the old man's front gate, and although they did not like 
the way the moon shone down upon the painted stones through the budding branches of the gnarled trees, they had more important things to think about than mere idle superstition. They feared it might be unpleasant work, making the terrible old man loquacious concerning his hoarded gold and silver, for aged sea captains are notably stubborn and perverse. Still, he was very old and very feeble, and there were two visitors. Masters Ritchie and Silver were experienced in the art of making unwilling persons voluble, and the screams of a weak and exceptionally venerable man can be easily muffled. So they moved up to the one lighted window and heard the terrible old man talking childishly to his bottles with pendulums. Then they donned masks and knocked politely at the weather-stained oaken door. Waiting seemed very long to Mr. Jameson as he fidgeted restlessly in the covered motor car by the terrible old man's back gate in Ship Street. He was more than ordinarily tender-hearted, and he did not like the hideous screams he had heard in the ancient house just after the hour appointed for the deed. Had he not told his colleagues to be as gentle as possible with the pathetic old sea captain? Very nervously, he watched the narrow oaken gate in the high, ivy-clad stone wall. Frequently, he consulted his watch and wondered at the delay. Had the old man died before revealing where his treasure was, hidden, and had a thorough search become necessary? Mr. Jameson did not like to wait so long in the dark in such a place. Then. He sensed a soft tread or tapping on the walk inside the gate, heard a gentle fumbling at the rusty latch, and saw the narrow, heavy door swing inward. And in the pallid glow of the single, dim street lamp, he strained his eyes to see what his colleagues had brought out of that sinister, sinister house which loomed so close behind. But when he looked, he did not see what he had expected, for his colleagues were not there at all, but only the terrible old man, leaning quietly on his knotted cane and smiling hideously. Mr. Jameson had never before noticed the color of that man's eyes. Now he saw that they were yellow. Little things make considerable excitement in little towns which is the reason that Kingsport people talked all that spring and summer about the three unidentifiable bodies, horribly slashed as with many cutlasses, and horribly mangled as by the tread of many cruel boot heels, which the tide washed in. And some people even spoke of things as trivial as the deserted motor car found in Ship Street, or certain especially inhuman cries, probably of a stray animal or migratory bird, heard in the night by wakeful citizens. But in this idle village gossip, the terrible old man took no interest at all. He was by nature reserved. And when one is old, aged and feeble, one's reserve is doubly strong. Besides, so ancient a sea captain must have witnessed scores of things much more stirring in the far off days of his unremembered youth. Wow, fantastic. Thank you so much.
I, thank I you watching... for letting me read. No, it was thank fantastic. you. I, I was watching Kay freaking out at points uh, <laughs> as well. <laughs> you you were on the outside, what we were all in the inside. Yes. Um, and and that's, a, that's a terrific story. And it's, it was one new to me, actually. Um, yeah, but, same. Uh, yeah, love it's one of my favorites. It's great to read aloud, and it's got that, just that little creepy twist that really feels like the right kind of campfire ghost story. Yes. Absolutely. He has such a fantastic sense of place. He does. And, and sort of archetypal menace, um, yes. Lovecraft. Um, for those not familiar with his work, he, he um, really pioneered the genre of cosmic, fiction, uh, cosmic mm -hmm. horror, which is a sort of horror at the vast and unknown. Yes. Um, and he, when you read Lovecraft, he's he's so familiar um, in in many ways um, because he, he's had such a profound influence. Um, but uh, it's it's wonderful to hear um, his work um, or, or read his work because it's it's such a kind of unadulterated terror. Um, so thank you so much for that. Um, I got so uh, scared I had to cuddle my baby Cthulhu. Oh, oh yeah, cute. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm very fond of Lovecraft's work because he really focuses on a horror that's very different from those who came before him. It's really more, it's not a religious fear, it's more of an existential fear. Mm -hmm. His work isn't unproblematic by any means. Um, and uh, I think that it's worthwhile, you know, noting that um, he needs to be read with uh, with an eye towards the many sort of uh, oppressive institutions that he participated in and supported. But at the same time, um, so many of our authors are imperfect human beings. And while that's not an excuse, it's, uh, it's certainly worth noting even while we continue to enjoy their work. Mm -hmm. Yep, I think that's very well put. And he's a fascinating figure to study as well. Um, and if you are interested in studying him, there is a fantastic course at Sigmund University, PLUG, um, called um, Literary Copernicus. Um, and it's all about H.P. Lovecraft and is uh, lectured by Amy Sturgis. Um, and even if the course isn't running live, you can um, purchase the lectures to listen to and follow along as you read through the text. And there is currently a deal on until the 24th of December um, where you get money off. Uh, so if you're listening to this live, then do check that out. That's going to be the only plug for tonight because we don't we don't um, we don't make a, a habit of of selling things but but we do want to sort of make people aware that uh, we have courses on all this cool stuff um, and uh, yeah if you if you want to find out more then do look at that up or or just um, read more Lovecraft as you say Mara um, pretty much and all I'd like to, if I may, if I may put in a recommendation the HP mm. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Oh, uh, so good. At hppodcraft.org has uh, a whole series in which they uh, discuss each of Lovecraft's stories, talk about its historical context, and they've since gone on to uh, explore other horror and cosmic fiction writers uh, throughout history. So that's a great, uh, a great place to get started if you want to check out Lovecraft's yeah. work. Yeah, I was listening to their their podcast on when they read out a different letter from H.P. Lovecraft. That's brilliant as well because he was a great letter writer. Um, and they do they've done like audio audio versions of all the stories as well. So there's a wealth of, of stuff if you're interested. Um, but thank you so much. Oh, and um, Christopher uh, says 
sorry, Christoph has said, I sadly have to leave now, but thank you so much for the reading. Um, and uh, oh, and Takako has pointed, so corrected me, that's the historical society. So you were talking about something slightly different, were you, Mara? Um, yeah, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, they're the ones doing the podcast where they discuss his letters. Right, that's what I've listened to. Dot com or um, the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, who often work with the uh, Historical Society. They're the ones uh, who have covered Lovecraft stories themselves. I see. Okay, thanks Thanks for, for um, point, uh, clarifying that, uh, Takako and Mara. So, th and great. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, and, uh, that, that, that's probably, well, mm, I was going to say that's going to be the most chilling story of tonight, but I'm not actually sure because we are going to hear an even more chilling story next. Um, so hold on to your hats and uh, hold your dear ones close. And, um, and your Cthulhu's. And your Cthulhu's and warm your hands by this roaring fire. Um, because the next story has been nominated by Takako. Um, so Takaka, I'm gonna I'm gonna explain this story a little bit, and a little bit about the author. But if you've got any more comments, then please do let me know um, because you're the expert on this. So this was nominated um, by Takako, uh, one of our Japanese students. Um, it's from Ten Nights of Dreams by Natsume Seki. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. So my Japanese is is terrible, um, but um, uh, this is a, a series of ten sort of short stories, each one a different dream, but the dreams take part in a place in different eras. Um, so it's a really kind of mysterious and profound work, um, really beautifully written. Um, I wish I could be reading it in Japanese. I can't. Uh, I've had to read it in translation. Um, but I, I do want to sort of emphasize the fact that if you want to read the best literature in the world, at some point you're going to have to get outside of English um, and learn other languages, ideally. And that's something you know, we really encourage people to do at Signum University, sort of following in the footsteps of J.R.R. Tolkien, who, um, you know, um, encouraged his friends as, as well as his students to um, take up uh, Old Norse and Anglo-Saxon and Ancient Greek and so on. Um, so um, uh, if you're very inspired tonight, then perhaps you'll take up Japanese um, and read this in the original, but you, you're going to hear it in English. So this is um, one of the dreams, one of the uh, from one of the nights. Uh, this is the third night. I had this dream. I carry a six-year-old child on my back. I'm aware that it is my own child. What was exceptional was that it had already lost its eyesight. Its head was shaven. As I asked. For how long have you been blind? It replies, oh, it has been a long time already. No doubt its voice was infantile, but the tone rather resembled an adult intonation. It communicates with me on the same level of language. To the left and to the right of us were green rice paddies. The path was narrow. Now and then the shadows of the green swamp herons emerged from the darkness. So we must have arrived at the flooded rice paddies, yes? Said the child on my back. How did you know that? I asked as I turned my head. Because I heard the swamp herons, it replied. Just at this moment, a green swamp heron screeched two times. The idea that it is my own child frightens me. I carry such a thing on my back and I am completely unaware of the future things that will come to pass. 
I looked for an appropriate place to throw it away. In the distance, a huge forest came into sight. In this remote forest, I can throw it away. At exactly the same moment, I heard the child on my back sneering. What are you joking about? I asked. The child re didn't reply. It just asked, am I heavy, father? Not heavy at all, I answered. Well, from now on, I'm going to gain more and more weight. I said nothing. We continued our path towards the forest. In the rice paddies, the path wound so that the distance to the forest seemed farther than it was. After a while, the path forked. I stood at the fork and rested a little bit. There should be a landmark at this place, said the thing on my back. And as a matter of fact, there is a landmark, about eight sun of height and rectangularly shaped, almost waist high. Written on the landmark was, the left pathway leads to Higakubu, whereas the right pathway leads to Hotahara. Although it was dusky, the red painted letters were clearly visible. The red colour of the letters resembled the reddening of newts. Now we head to the left, of course, the child commanded. As I glanced to the left, I saw the shadow play of the forest. It beclouded the vast sky up to us. For a moment, I hesitated. Don't dilly-dally, the child exclaimed. Reluctantly, I continued my way towards the forest. I wondered about the knowledge of the blind child. As my thoughts passed by, we got closer to the forest and this forlorn pathway. Then the child on my back said, Blindness is an annoying handicap, isn't it? That's why I carry you, I said, so why bother? I'm much obliged for you carrying me, but I really don't like being looked down on by people, especially not my own father. For some reason, I felt very uncomfortable at this point. I hurried up, walking faster towards the forest to get rid of the child forever. Just a little bit further down this pathway, then you will understand. It was in a night like this. The child on my back spoke more or less to himself. Full of fear, I asked, What do you mean? What? You know very well what about, hissed the child. I started to remember, but the memory was still too far away. By myself, I also could feel that it was on a night just like this. If I walk on, I will understand. The returning memory seems insufferable to me. I must get rid of the child without delay whilst I cannot remember anything. Without that remorse, easiness will return. I quickened my path. It had been raining for some time. The pathway grew darker. I focused on walking as fast as possible, but the little child stuck to my back. It enlightens my past, the present and the future. This child is a mirror to the truth. This mirror is my own blind child. I could not bear it. Here it is, at the root of that cedar. In the middle of the rain, the child spoke those words manifestly. I stopped. Without meaning to, I had entered the forest. About six feet in front of me stood a black mass that was, as the child predicted, a cedar. Father, don't you remember? 
It was at the root of that cedar. Yes, it was, I answered unknowingly. It was the fifth year of the bunker era in the sign of the dragon. For sure it had been a dragon year, I was thinking to myself. You murdered me one hundred years ago to the day, didn't you? As those words were spoken, my memory returned. At this place, one hundred years ago, in the fifth year of the bunker era, in the darkness on the root of the cedar, I had indeed murdered a blind human being. The instant I understood that I was a murderer, the child on my back explosively gained weight until it was as heavy as a stone chat statue of Jizu. And that's it. That's the story. So, um, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's pretty chilling. Um, I, I mean, oh, and you can interpret it in, in lots of different ways. Um, uh, a lot of these dreams that have a kind of, you know, I mean, they're written as dreams, right? So that they kind of have this weird kind of dream logic in them. Um, but clearly this is a dream about kind of guilt and um, how, you know, things carry on. We, we Even if we try to forget them, they're still there and they still remind us and nag away at us. There's also something really creepy about having something on your back. There's a Doctor mm -hmm. Who episode about that. Um, yes. You know, and especially a child on your back and then like the fact that the murdered this guy and then became like his own child that he's carrying around fantastic stuff so thank you so much arigata gozaimasu uh, takako-san uh, for that um and uh I, again you know i i i didn't know really anything about um about the the author sasaki uh though i heard the title of one of his novels um i am a cat um uh, but uh I haven't read it yet, um, but he, he sounds like a fascinating person. Um, so he's a novelist, he was a scholar of British literature, he was a composer of poetry and fairy tales, um, and highly rated in Japan. He was he was on the thousand yen note for about 20 years. Um, so uh, yeah, thank you very much, um, Takako, for that. Uh, and as I say, if you have any more comments, um, then do, Takaka says, watch out for your back. And Penny says, I'm too scared to go to sleep now. And it is 2 a.m. I, I thank you so much for staying up with us, um, Penny. Um, but I, I, since I'm also in the UK, I'm, I'm, we're, we're both sort of in this death grip together. Um, that we're staying up the, to silly o'clock in the morning, um, uh, listening to ghost stories, like the fools that we are. Um, but uh, I'm hoping that we, we're going we're gonna to end on... Um, a note of uh, of hope um, as we see maybe the glimmer of the dawn uh, on the horizon. Um, but uh, we, we, we have a few more ghost stories to get through before we finish, um, although we are slowly drawing to a close. So the next person um, is Wesley. If you are there, Wesley, because I haven't heard from you yet. So if you can, if you are there, please uh, let your presence be known, Wesley. Ooh, wow. I'm here. Right here, fantastic. Here. Thank you very much for joining us in uh, in Washington State. So yes. what time is it for you? It's a little bit earlier, isn't it? Oh, it's only about 6 p.m. here. But it's got dark, hasn't it? Yeah, oh, long ago. Long yeah. ago yeah, it gets dark early. Yeah, so, um, this, this piece I'm going to read, uh, it fits really nicely with the one you just read, actually. Um, uh, uh, the, the the poet rides on the back of a donkey uh, in this case, and his donkey is named Platero. 
And the poet is the yo of the title, that, that's just I in Spanish. That's him, Juan Ramon Jimenez, or, or a narrator very like him, it seems, um, who tells these stories in prose poems of his uh, childhood hometown in Spain. Um, it's, it's a really wonderful book, Platero Yo. If you haven't heard of it, I hope you check it out. Um, I, I was thinking I would read it in Spanish first and then read the translation um, so that you kind of get the sound of it before anything else. Does that sound okay? That sounds perfect. I, I would love that. Thank you very much. Yeah, right on. Okay, so it's called La Fantasma, which means the ghost. La Fantasma. La mayor diversión de Anilla de la Manteca, cuya fugosa y fresca juventud fue manadero sin fin de alegrones, era vestirse de fantasma. Se envolvía toda en una sábana, añadía harina al, al senón de su rostro, se ponía dientes de ajo en los dientes, y cuando ya, después de cenar, soñábamos, medio dormidos en la salita, aparecía ella de improviso por la escalera de mármol con una farol encendido, andando lenta, imponente y muda. Era vestida ella de aquel modo, como si su desnudez se hubiese hecha túnica. Sí, daba espanto la visión sepulcral que traía de los altos oscuros, pero al mismo tiempo fascinaba su blancura sola, con no sé qué plenitud sensual. Nunca olvidaré, Platero, aquella noche de septiembre, la tormenta palpitaba sobre el pueblo, hacía una hora, como un corazón malo, descargando agua y piedra entre la desesperadora insistencia del relámpago y del trueno, rebosaba ya el aljibe, inundaba el patio, los últimos acompañamientos, el coche de las nueve, las ánimas, el cartero, habían ya pasado. Fui tembloroso a beber el comedor y en la verde blancura de un relámpago vi el eucalipto de las Valarde, el árbol de cuco, como le decíamos, que cayó aquella noche, doblado todo sobre el tejado del alpede. De pronto, un espantoso ruido seco, como la sombra de un rito de luz que nos dejó ciegos, conmovió la casa. Cuando volvimos a realidad, todos estábamos en sitio diferente del que teníamos un momento antes, y como solos todos, sin afán ni sentimiento de los demás. Uno se quejaba de la cabeza, otro de los ojos, otro del corazón. Poco a poco fuimos tornando a nuestros sitios. Se alejaba la tormenta, la luna entre unas nubes enormes que se rajaban de abajo arriba, encendía de blanco en el patio el agua que todo lo comaba. Fuimos mirándolo todo. Lord iba y venía a la escalera del corral, ladrando loco. Los seguimos. Platero, abajo ya, junto a la flor de noche que mojada exhalaba un neseobundo olor, 
la pobre anilla vestida de fantasma estaba muerta, aún encendido el faro en su mano negra por el rayo. So, the ghost, the greatest joy of Anilla la Manteca, whose fiery and fresh youth was an unending spring of pleasure, was to dress up as a ghost. She would wrap herself completely in a sheet, make up her face lily white with flour, stick garlic cloves on her teeth. Then when we would be dreaming after dinner, half dozing in the small sitting room, she would appear suddenly on the marble steps, carrying a lighted lantern, walking slowly, grandiose and mute. Dressed in that manner, she looked as if her nudity had become her tunic. Yes, this spectral vision that would descend from the dark upper regions inspired fright, but at the same time, its absolute whiteness was bewitching with a kind of sensuous fullness. I shall never forget Platero, that September night, the storm was throbbing over the village for an hour like a sick heart pouring down rain and hail between the insistent desperation of lightning and thunder. The cistern was already overflowing and flooding the patio. The last sounds, the nine o'clock coach, the deep ringing of the bells for the departed souls, the postman had already gone by. A little shaken, I went to the dining room to get a drink of water and in the green whiteness of a flash of lightning, I saw the eucalyptus tree of the Velardes, the tree of the cuckoo, as we used to call it, which came down that night, all of it bent low over the roof of the shed. Suddenly a frightful dry clap, like the shadow of a streak of light that left us blinded, shook the house. When we came back to reality, we were all in a different place from the one we were standing in moments earlier, and each of us feeling alone, without anxiety or feeling for the others. One complained of his head, another of his eyes, another of his heart. Slowly we returned to our places. The storm was moving on, the moon appearing between enormous clouds ripped from top to bottom, was lighting in white the water which was covering everything in the patio. We went around looking at everything. Lord, the dog, was running back and forth to the steps of the corral, barking madly. We followed him. Platero, down there by the night flower, which being damp gave off a nauseating smell. The poor Anilla, dressed as a ghost, lay dead the lantern still lighted in her black hand, blackened by a lightning bolt. Wow, fantastic. Oh my. Uh, thank you so much, Wesley, and thank you so much for reading out in Spanish to begin with, because yes. I could, I mean, I, I really got the rhythm in the first reading and then the meaning in the second. I mean, if right. I could understand Spanish, I could, you know. I could understand both at the same time, but fantastic and so beautifully written and, and beautifully read as well. Um, yeah. So how did you come across the, um, I mean, um, so Juan Ramon, uh, Ramon Jimenez is a, is a, you know, he, he's, a, he's a big figure in Spanish literature, as mm -hmm. I understand, right? Yes, I think he's still read mostly for this book. Um, and it's, uh, it's taught in schools. It's, it's pretty difficult language. Like I, I, I have trouble with it still. And I studied Spanish in school and that's how I came across it. And also I think it gets listed along with 
books like The Little Prince and, and um, The Alchemist. It's kind of in that um, neck of the woods as far as uh, uh, great children's slash wise sorts of books. Um, yeah, yeah, with, very profound. With beautiful friendships in them, you know. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I mean, there was it was um, it was it was chilling, but also you know cool to hear and. Uh, the thing about Signum University is we always extend people's to read pile. Um, so you can never, you never get to the end of the books. Um, but thank you very much. Of course, we're, we're, we're going outside the Anglosphere now with, with uh, Japanese and Spanish. Um, yeah. And we have, we have one more ghost story left uh, before we wrap up for tonight. Um, but uh, once again, thank you very much, Wesley, for that. Thank um, you. That ghost story. Thank you. Um, so, uh, we we are rapidly approaching well not rapidly but we are approaching the end um and uh i've run out of mulled wine and i've just thrown the last log onto the fire um and although it is a very long night uh it feels a little bit less long um now that we've uh, we've spent some of it um in storytelling so the the, the final story uh for tonight has been nominated by uh lynn uh, who I think has been um, driving to Connecticut, um, so can't attend live. Well, she, she said she might tune in on the road, um, or maybe uh, if she gets uh, to her location uh, before the end of this, she might tune in as well. Um, but she uh, wanted us to to read the story uh, about the uh, the golem of Prague, um, and um, it's a Jewish story, and of course. T tonight, today has been the first day of Hanukkah, so um, happy Hanukkah to all of those who uh, celebrate it. Um, and uh, uh, my my grandfather came from Prague uh, and and was um, of Jewish descent, so he he was uh, uh, he he left just before this um, story was set, but. Um, it has some some significance to me, but uh, it's a, it's it's a beautiful story. I'm going to be reading out bits of it. I'm going to be reading out the uh, the bits that um, uh, Lynn has put in to uh, summarize bits that she's cut, uh, and then Kay will be reading out the actual narrative parts. So I'm um, I'm just going to read out the kind of the preface to this that uh, Lynn has provided um, from uh, an article written by Jay Michelson, which just explains what uh, the golem is. Um, uh, so this is runs as follows: the classic narrative of the golem tells of how Rabbi Judah Lowe of Prague, known as the Maharal, um, created a golem. Sorry, a golem. I keep on thinking golem um, <laughs> from Lord of the Rings. I mean, I'm sure there's a kind of link there between golem and, go and golem, but um, not a direct link. So he, uh, Rabbi Lowe creates a golem to defend the Jewish community from anti-Semitic attacks, but eventually the golem grows fearsome and violent and Rabbi Lowe is forced to destroy it. Legend tells that the golem remains in the attic of the um, Altenschel in Prague, ready to be reactivated if needed. This legend reappeared in Michael Chabon's The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Uh, likewise, in Paul uh, Wegner's expressionist film The Golem in 1920, the golem is a brutish creature whose powers are all too easily turned to destructive ends. So that's a little bit of the background for those not familiar. Um, the This uh, story uh, is from The Golem by Naomi Kritzer, um, which can be found in Comrade Grandmother and other stories 
uh, available on Amazon Kindle. Uh, so Kay, if you'd like to begin the story and I'll come in at points. The Golem woke on December 1st, 1941, to a cold wind. Frogs smell different than she remembered. She lay on the earth from which she'd been made, breathing in the scent of the new century, mud and sour garbage and gasoline fumes. Frogs surrounded her like a machine that turned on a thousand notched wheels, spinning in the night toward a future that she could see like an unrolled scroll. Hannah, are we almost done? I think I hear someone coming. One more minute, Elena. Her creators, women, how strange. That was, of course, why the golem was a woman as well. Hannah Leibn was the golem's creator. Elena Nebeski was Hannah's assistant. Hannah had seven months to live, the golem saw. She would die with Elena in June in the vicious purges after the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich. The police would knock on their door at 4.17 p.m. Hannah would shout, where are you taking her? And be shot dead on the doorstep. One less Jew to deport to Terezin. Which would mean that the golem should be free if she could persuade Hannah not to destroy her before then. It's time to sit up. At least she could take this slowly. No patrol would pass the old Jewish cemetery for one hour, six minutes and 43 seconds. The golem stood up a little unsteadily. She remembered that the two women had spoken Czech, not Yiddish, and realized with surprise that Hannah was Jewish, but Elena was not. Elena looks closely at the golem. There's something familiar about your face, she said. Look in a mirror, Hannah said. She could be your sister. Elena looked again and recoiled slightly. Did you do that on purpose? No, Hannah said. I was working so quickly. She's lucky she has a nose. The golem helped them get over the cemetery gate as well as she could. Her previous bodies had been better suited to this sort of thing. Always before, she had possessed strength without knowledge. This time, she had knowledge and little else. So she told them what she could, that they could take their time. They named the golem Margit after a cousin of Elena's who lives in Canada. You called me and I woke, she said. For what purpose have you created me? Hannah turned to her, meeting her gaze without flinching, for the same purpose as all the golems, to protect the Jews of Prague. The golem felt the impossibility of the request sweep over her like rising floodwater. The machinery of death was already in motion around her. The protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia was run by Reinhard Heydrich, the man who had built Dachau and enshrined the words Arbeit macht frei, work will set you free, over the gates. He had already begun deporting the Czech Jews to Terezin, 
the deportations would continue, taking 1,200 Jews each week until only a handful, the spouses or children of Gentiles, remained. From Terezin, nearly all would ultimately be taken to Auschwitz or Treblinka to die. The golem's voice was flat when she answered, No one can protect the Jews of Prague. Elena and Hannah sent the golem on errands, such as delivering messages on behalf of the resistance. On her first errand, she sees... A Jewish family, struggling with suitcases and two small children. The golem made her way toward them. Hannah had told her to help if she could. The woman had set down her suitcase, trying to rebalance the child on her hip when the golem reached them. The golem didn't really want to know who they were or what fate awaited them. But the knowledge was there as soon as it occurred to her to wonder. Shayna and Mandel Feinbaum and their children, Selig, age three, and Raisa, age six months. Shayna and Raisa would die at Terezin during one of the typhoid outbreaks. Mandel and Selig would live to be murdered at Treblinka in 18 months. Excuse me, the golem said. You look a bit overwhelmed with the children and the suitcases. May I carry something for you? She helps the family with their suitcases. They are going to the trade fairgrounds from where they could take the train to Terezin the Jews having been told that this was a place of safety. Wait, Shana said, I want to give you something. I don't need any payment, the golem said. Not payment, Shana said, just a gift. She opened one of the bags and drew out a small silver case, which she pressed into the golem's hands, just to say thank you. The golem closed her hand over the gift and watched as the families went to join the other families queuing in a jostling mass. When they were gone, she opened her hand and looked. Shayna had given her a silver cigarette case with five cigarettes inside and a book of matches. Looking more closely, the golem realized that a pearl had been hidden inside the cigarette case as well. It was a single perfect pearl set into a pendant with a thin gold chain. She wondered if Shana had meant to give her the pearl or just the cigarettes, but it hardly mattered. Better the golem have the pearl than the Nazis. Back at Hannah and Elena's. There's something else I'd like to know, Hannah said. What happens if you get arrested? The golem knew what she was asking. The golem was made of clay, brought to life with faith and magic. Hannah could destroy the golem with a quick gesture across the golem's forehead, changing the word emit, truth, to myth, death. But if she were shot, could a bullet stop a heart of clay? Bullets will not stop me the golem said, but a hot enough fire can consume even clay. 
Anna nodded. However, I cannot be coerced to reveal your secrets, the golem said. The golem continues to help, but also thinks about the future and how she will be free once Hannah dies. She finds herself making choices. She gives Shana's pearl to a young woman, Dobre, on her way to the fair trade fairgrounds and tells the woman where to get to go to get false papers. There, then she decides to stay all night in the countryside rather than returning to Elena and Hannah. She found herself thinking about Dobre. She realized with a shock that she no longer knew Dobre's fate. It was as if the page she'd been looking at was now simply missing. She found herself poking at it mentally, like the tongue pokes a missing tooth. Still gone. Dobre must have taken her advice. She might or might not live. But she would no longer die from typhus and starvation one week before liberation. It occurred to her suddenly that something she had done might also have changed Hannah's fate. But no, that was still there. Relieved, she headed back to the apartment. Reinhard Heydrich is assassinated, and the reaction is quick and severe. Members of the resistance are arrested or killed. Elena goes to get false papers for a friend and has enough funds to get the golem false papers, using her own Elena's photograph, as they look so much alike, but not using the name Margit. Elena shook her head. If Margit hadn't been figured as a member of the resistance, yet she will be. Elena explains why she did not get papers for herself. I'm not leaving Hannah. I'd rather die with her than lose her. When Elena spoke of Hannah, her face twisted oddly, almost as if she were in pain. The golem studied Elena's eyes, wondering what that would be like to feel that way for another. Hannah had errands for her, messages that needed to be delivered. The golem knew, however, that all of the recipients had already been arrested, or would be, by the time she made it across Prague. If she did complete the errands, Hannah and Elena would both be dead by the time she returned, just as she'd been waiting for. So she took the papers, and went to the old Jewish cemetery. The tomb that the golem was looking for was near the main entrance. Paired marble tablets linked by a roof marked grave of Rabbi Lowe. She sat down in the shade of the slabs and lit a cigarette. So I'm back, she said softly. This time, nobody is going to destroy me. There won't be anyone to do it. I can live forever. I'll just avoid anyone who could hurt me. I know everything I need to know to stay alive. She thought of the expression on Elena's face as she spoke of Hannah. I'd rather die with her than lose her. I've even got papers now, she said. 
Elena bought them for me, finally, instead of buying them for herself. I have freedom. She was even freer than Elena. Elena was trapped here, tied to Hannah. The golem was tied to nobody. Again, she saw the expression on Elena's face, thinking of Hannah. All I need to do is walk away, she said. She could do that, she knew. Even if she had been bound to her creator's will, her creator would be dead within hours. She was free to choose any fate she desired. This time, finally, she would survive. Alone, but alive. I'd rather die with her than lose her. The golem realized suddenly that the cigarette had burned away in her hand and she hadn't even inhaled any of the smoke. Disgusted, she stubbed out the last of it on the ground. Then she stood. The sun was warm on her shoulders. This is my choice, she said to the rabbi's grave. This is my decision. The golem returned to the apartment at 3.10 p.m. Elena, she called, Hannah, gather your valuables, leave everything else or you'll arouse suspicions. You need to go now or you'll both be killed in just over an hour. The women obeyed her without hesitation. They put on several layers of clothes, though it would be hot, and each filled a purse and a shopping bag with food and the valuables they had left. The golem followed them through the apartment, talking. Go to Kutnahora, she said. It was one of the larger towns in Bohemia. She gave them an address for another apartment. They have a vacancy right now. The landlord isn't nosy and he won't care who lives in the apartment aside from Elena. Don't waste time. In a week, he'll rent the place to a Nazi sympathizer who will later betray his next door neighbor for sheltering Jews. It's much better that the landlord rent to you. There was room in Hannah's shopping bag for her Talmud. It was an antique, a family heirloom. She took it, although there were other things that would have been more practical. She left the books of Golem lore. The golem stopped Elena at the door. Give me your papers, she said, and handed Elena the false papers that Elena had bought for her. Now go. As Elena and Hannah headed down the stairs to the street, the golem felt their fate vanish from her mind. She was certain that they would live or die together whatever happened. In the meantime, the Germans would come to arrest Elena Nabeski and they would find her. The golem picked up Hannah's book of golem lore, lit the last of Shana's cigarettes and sat down in the immaculate parlor to wait.
Thank you, Kay, for that reading. And thank you so much to Lynn for nominating this incredible story. Um, again, author new to me, I, I knew a little bit about The Legend of the Golem, um, but uh, that retelling is incredible um, for the setting, for the fact that the Golem is female, for um, the way it's told. Um, yeah, really, really incredible. And uh, beautifully um, uh, edited by Lynn, but uh, if, if you want to read the whole unabridged story, it's not that much longer. It's about maybe double that size. Um, you can do so in Comrade Grandmother and other stories. Um, so that's that's the last of the stories. We're, we're, I don't want to end on exactly that note because it's it, obviously that's a, that's an incredible story and um, touches on some really you know big stuff in history. Um, so I thought it would it would be um, uh, I don't want to leave you entirely on that note. Um, but uh, and Penny says, what a brilliant night, wonderful stories and poems beautifully read. I'm off to have a mince pie while I decide if there's any point going to bed. <laughs> thank you all. Yes, <laughs> I, you, I hope. Penny. Uh, I, thank you so much. Well, I, I'm glad you enjoyed this. Um, we've certainly enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, and thank you, Penny, for staying up so late with, with me. Um, I assume everyone else is either in Japan or in the United States, um, but tell me if I'm wrong. Um, I, I just wanted to sort of end on a few things. Firstly, let's have let's let's pull a cracker. Yes. So that, again, this is I don't know how known this is. Who who was making a noise just then? <laughs> I, I was clapping because uh, it's it's a novelty we picked up thanks to Harry Potter. Oh, <laughs> uh, of course, it's in Harry Potter, isn't it? Yeah. It is in Harry Potter. So my family so, and I started. Do you have crackers? Uh, we can we hard my, to find. they're hard to find but my my mother has somehow found them well my oh, mom, mom accidentally bought like about sort of 100 years worth of crackers so we've got like a whole cupboard full of them so you you Excellent. pull you each grab a side um and pull it out and did that maybe too energetically <laughs> because everything fell out um so it's all right. Paloma and Pushkin will have new toys. Paloma's just run off to investigate. So there's a toy inside, <laughs> a riddle or a joke, and this hat. And this hat yes. is very important. Very important. It's shaped as a crown. Yes, um, and this has lots of significance. So firstly, the um, the the the, the, the uh, habit of wearing this kind of headgear actually goes back to the Romans. I have my fact sheet here. Ooh. Um, oh, it, it goes back to Saturnalia, a festival that took place around the oh. winter solstice. Um, so the Romans wore festive headgear. So it goes back to that, but also because it's crown shaped, if you can see, um, this goes back to the, kind of the medieval concept of carnivals, that um, mm -hmm. it would be a day when the poor, uh, the lowly would um, act as kings um, and it would be a way of sort of letting off steam and um, uh, avoiding revolution if um, mm. we can all pretend to be kings for the day. Um, so we all put on our paper crowns and then we sit around the TV to watch the Queen's speech, um, or at least we do in my family. Um, <laughs> and uh, and you get a little toy and you get a riddle as well. And the riddle is sort of, you know, I think goes Cute. back to Anglo-Saxon uh, yes. tradition, which the same sort of thing. Tolkien was drawing on in The Hobbit. Um, and... Uh, you get a wonderful smell of gunpowder as well because yes. there's a little bit of gunpowder in there when you pop them. So um, I thought that would be a, <laughs> that would be fun. Um, and um, yeah, Ashley says uh, 
Uh, William Sonoma carries Christmas crackers. I don't know what William Sonoma is, but presumably it means something to it's, it's a, people it's a are nodding. Store. Okay, that's yes. good to know. Um, in the US, kitchen, uh, kitchen stuff. Right yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, Carissa says, uh, "What fun and such a good idea! Thank you to all. Um, well, thank you for." Oh, I have a question. Yes, please. I've, as we were reading these wonderful, wonderful stories, I thought of a very happy Christmas season ghost story that is it's a novella but it's been uh read aloud I wonder if I may put up on the chat box for everyone a link to the shepherd please do and and perhaps you could for the benefit of people listening to this later if you just if you give a few more details oh so I will if they want if if folks want to um um look it up it, it was written by frederick forsyth f-r-e-d-e-r-i-c-k f-o-r-s-y-t-h and it takes place on a christmas eve in britain um perhaps 10 or 20 years after world war ii and there this this particular so google that and you want to click on the CBC Canadian radio broadcast and it's absolutely beautiful so I'm going to put the link up for everyone and will you let hmm. 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 apparently as a panelist I can only send things to all of y'all so Gabriel if you will bounce it out to everyone else uh gosh that this just is come up for you this is this is asking a lot for someone who's just had a lot of mulled wine and it's two thirty in the morning. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I can, but, oh, but hold hopefully on. That's let me enough. send it to all the panelists then. Okay, yeah. And, maybe it's gonna ask it. I'm distracted by awake. my cat Paloma, who's the um the, the present inside the cracker was a little ball that she's now delighted. She's very it. happy. Popped out of cracker, great. she's playing with it. Um, so I, I, I have a quick story to tell just to, to end the evening. But um, before I do, Penny says, what is Christmas without the smell of gunpowder? Um, which, yeah, what, what else do you think of at this time of year? Um, and I just wanted to hear from, from anyone else, uh, what, any last thoughts on, on the, the stories or um, the, what, what this time of year means to you? Um, uh, Kay, is this is the the solstice a significant for you in particular? Or oh, you're muted, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> the spirits have taken your voice. It's close to my bedtime as well. Um, yes, I'm I'm someone for whom the season of Advent is of particular significance. And this is my first year, like marking the solstice in any significant sense. And I, I've, I'm finding, especially having Sparrow's reading was just sort of this like marvelous through line between those two seasons for me. This like, the friendliness of cold and of dark or perhaps we could say like the necessity of cold and of dark, that this is something that is needed for us also. And that there is a, a 
a type of a type of balance that it brings to us that could not be accessed any other way um, and i think i think that there are there is something about that aspect of the different festivals that happen this time of year especially and uh, not just from any one tradition but like all of the festivals that occur when there is bright juxtaposed with dark and with cold mm. that carry this very deep truth inside them that somehow we need both of these things um mm -hmm. And I, I've been finding that resonating very deeply with me this year. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Elise, do, do you have anything that you'd like to share just about the, the winter solstice, just to wrap up? Oh, well, um, like, hey, this is the first time I've really participated in a winter solstice thing as opposed to Christmas. But I find that I'm really understanding now, especially with rereading Dickens again, and um, Susan Cooper's amazing poems and work, um, and of course Sparrow's poetry, just how magical Christmas really is. And there are, there are some years that I become so disillusioned and jaded by the capitalism that goes along with it and just the, the message getting lost um, through the rush of buying gifts and, you know, wishing that some of my relatives would be happier with a hug than with the most expensive gift that I can't afford. But I was talking to my students and these, the students I work with are very young. They are, some of them aren't even two years old. Um, I teach babies really and, and young students up to the age of five and we read um, each, we read stories to them during story time. You know, we, of course we read the origins of Hanukkah and uh, some feel good Christmas stories. And some, they, they had some really good thoughts on what these holidays mean and what it means to care for someone and what it means to be a good charitable and loving person and of course you think from the mouths of babes you know and mm -hmm. in my case quite literally <laughs> from the mouths of babes um you know and of course it's this is this was the week that i was getting all the presents and all the um all the hugs and kisses from the from the little babies and prompted by their mothers of course like go go give your teacher a hug and um it's and this reminded me again that this is truly supposed to be a season not, not just of giving presents but of giving love and charity and giving your soul in a sense mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and we need to do it as well um when when the the days are as short and, and the nights are as long and dark as they are um so i yeah, we better wrap up um because um <laughs> The ghosts are getting tired, uh, let, let alone us. Um, but I just wanted just to end with, I, I just when I was thinking about this event, I, I re was reminded of a, a teach, my own teaching experience uh, about a year and a half ago when I was uh, teaching in Uganda, um, a group of um, Francophone students from different um, sub-Saharan African countries. And uh, we were doing hobbies up on the board and I wrote writing and reading and 
eating and rollerblading and all the usual things. And then someone, a young woman, put her hand up and she said, storytelling. And I arrogantly mm. said, no, 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 we've already got that. And I pointed to writing and she said, no, no, storytelling. Uh, telling Very stories like, like we've been doing um, this evening and and of course it is a very different thing from writing uh, mm -hmm. or from reading um, and uh, a few weeks after that um, with my French class I said let's tell ghost stories and um, uh, we all sort of sat around and we told ghost stories um, and uh, remember there was a, it was a great uh, story from one of my students from Mauritania about um, a, a tree that a spirit lived in and someone in the village cut down that tree and the next day their house burnt down. Um, so the moral of that story is don't go chopping down trees where spirits live there. Um, but it was, it was a wonderful kind of um, moment where, where even though they, they were coming from very, very different parts of the world for me, um, I identified with that story. Uh, I understood it. Um, they understood what I was talking about as well. Um, and uh, we've certainly felt that tonight as well. Uh, the power of storytelling but also the power of ghost stories um because whatever culture whatever country you come from whether you're northern hemisphere or southern hemisphere uh, whether this was the winter solstice or the summer solstice for you and we all have this kind of fascination with the other side uh, the realm beyond our own um, and we've heard some fantastic stories um of that realm tonight uh, and that's the kind of the thought I'd like to leave you with uh, tonight, as well as the the, the lovely thoughts um, from the the remaining panel. Um, of course, uh, Maggie was taken away by the fairies earlier on tonight, so um, she's uh, she's not here anymore. Um, but uh, uh, you know, those thoughts are about love and kindness and um, goodwill. So um, we wish you a very happy um, festive period and a wonderful new year and we will see you with uh, in lots of other events in the new year at signum university um so until then uh, have a lovely rest of time restful festive time and uh uh Takaka says thank you and happy holidays to you all um same to you Takako. uh veronica thank you panel happy holidays um oh and Takako also adds that uh she can put the the link to the story sparrow in the description so if you send it to her um, i certainly watching will this thank you later on on youtube just look there mm -hmm. in the description. so um yes. i'm going to end now thank you very much everyone don't have nightmares <laughs> and happy holidays good night thank everyone. you gabriel and kay for organizing yes uh, thank you everyone so much thank you thank you and happy happy lovely. winter solstice well happy december solstice for everyone wherever you are good night good okay night. good night everyone bye-bye mm -hmm. thanks all for joining as well Good night.